All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. Listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. Welcome back to the Northern Hunter Podcast, everybody. I'm Dalton Gray. I'm Ryan Humphreys. And thanks for joining us for another week of our podcast. Unfortunately, our uh, our big boss, James Payne, is not able to join us tonight. Uh, he got delayed at work. I guess some mm-hmm. things came up, and he was stuck at the office today, unfortunately. So he'll be back to join us, hopefully, for our next episode. So it's just going to be Mariah and I this week, and we're just going to cover a few important topics here at the beginning of the show and then work into some more guns and optics and ammo banter. Uh, This is the season of buying, at least up here in Alaska. We have Black Friday coming up soon here. you believe it's already November? No, I've been trying to ignore that. (laughs) But also prepare. It's, uh, yeah, it, it... pretty well snuck up on all of us here uh, that the month of November is both a time of happiness of upcoming deer hunting for us and also a point of sadness that mm-hmm. spring, summer, and fall is over. Bear baiting has been gone for, what, six months now? Almost. I've lost track of time. And then fall moose season came and went. Mm-hmm. Fall brown bear came and went. Mm-hmm. And here we are sitting in 10 degree weather and snow today. Lots of snow. In some places today. Really? Yeah, at least where I was working. I saw a forecast for snow this morning, and I wonder if I was going to be plowing today, but... Yeah, yeah, there was three or four inches where I was at today. Really? Uh, Yeah, the roads are slicker than snot right now. Yeah, they have been since that freezing rain the other night, but... Yeah, freezing rain, and then these warmer temperatures. We still haven't seen anything below zero, knock on wood. I'm okay with that persisting. I saw, like, right at zero at my house. Oh, did you? A few weeks back. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, where I'm at, I haven't seen anything quite zero yet. So anyway, if you guys like the show and you like what we're doing, please, uh, just this is your reminder, please write a review, a written review on whatever platform you're Mm -hmm. listening on, recommending it to people, or just leave us a five-star review. That also helps us tremendously with the algorithms and to help get this show in front of more people. You can also email us on our website if you hit the contact button at thenorthernhunter.com. And you can write us in directly with an email asking a question or making a suggestion. Mm-hmm. Or if you have some uh, some constructive criticism for us, things we can do better uh, to work on improving as we continue to learn how to do this show better for you guys. And then you can also shop from any one of our half a dozen sponsors slash partnerships that we have going on right now. We have all of our discount codes listed in our partners page 
for the applicable um, places that you can shop and get discounts on your order. And don't forget, you can shop Northern Hunter merch, hats, hoodies, and t-shirts right now with more designs in the right. works. And, and I I know we keep saying that, but we really are working on it. Uh, it's, it's a lot of a process to deal with, uh, with supplies and with designs. And we all have full-time jobs here at home and also managing the podcast and a whole lot of other important things coming up with the Northern Hunter. So on that note, let's jump into our first announcement, Mariah. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. All right. I'm going to hit you with it. We are switching back to one episode of the podcast per week. It's so sad, isn't it? This is due to two reasons. Would you like to know the first one, Mariah? What's the first one, Dalton? All right. The first one is listener feedback. Okay. So our listeners, we asked our listeners a couple of months ago before we switched over to two episodes per week, and we asked if they would prefer one average to long form, just depending on the episode topic, mm-hmm. um, episode coming out every Monday, which is how a lot of podcasts roll. They do one episode per week, and sometimes it's an hour and a half. Sometimes it's three hours, you right. know, complete Joe Rogan style. And uh, our listeners loved that. And then we said, well, we're going to experiment and try to do two episodes a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and see if we can cut our time per episode down to be a little bit more digestible, if you will, right? down to about an hour and a half. And our feedback has been great, and we appreciate all of you who wrote in to express your opinion about it. But we are going back to one episode per week due to popular demand. And also, Mariah, ready for reason number two? What's the second reason, Dalton? The second reason is, <laughs> this is just fun. The second reason is we have some exciting new projects coming up that we're working on behind the scenes. The Northern Hunter is not just a podcast. And when James gets back, we will get into this a little bit more in depth. But we've been working a lot on other things to bring to you guys in other forms of media. Perhaps maybe to watch on a screen, we can just tease that aspect of oh, it. But, really? But it's a lot of work. I, I know we've talked about, uh, about some video things in the past, just kind of teasing it and, and some mm-hmm. foreshadowing. But... We're, we're working on a lot of different things here at, uh, at the office. And uh, so partly for that reason as well, uh, outside of listener feedback, we are going to be going back to one episode per week. And you can expect that the same time that you have been from the beginning, which is now over a year of production for the podcast. So every Monday morning on your drive to work, mm-hmm. you can listen to the new episode of the Northern Hunter podcast. Without further ado... Let's jump into our first discussion topic, Mariah. Proposal season for fish and game regulation changes to 2024 regulatory year are now in play. And we, uh, we found something interesting today. So for those of you that have kept up with the show for a while now, we've talked about different caribou herds in particular mm-hmm. and kind of the swings and the ebbs and the flows that come with caribou. And really that there are... Um, th- Probably the majority of animals in Alaska tend to do this over time. Predators seem to be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty stable, pretty consistent in their numbers, and they, they, at least to me, they always seem to be growing. So, but with caribou and moose and sheep and deer, there seems to be a lot of swings, right? Right. Um, th- th- those are kind of the big ones that we hear about a lot. And caribou tend to be the most dramatic because there are, well, probably more caribou than anything else, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there is a proposal that came up. I actually saw it on the Hunt and Fool Instagram page today, and it caught my attention. 
And the post said Alaska proposal number 38 is on the table for closing all non-resident caribou hunting in unit 23 in parentheses Kotzebue area slash Western Arctic caribou herd and parentheses thoughts on this submit your comments before January 12th 2024. So Mo and I dug into the Alaska Department of Fish and Games website and found their proposals page and all their PDFs and the outlines for 2024 proposed changes. Now you can look at a bunch of different regions for the state of Alaska. Uh, there is the Western Arctic Western region, mm-hmm. and that has proposals for Uktiavik, Nome, Bethel, region-wide and multiple units, and Kotzebue. And then it also goes down to interior and eastern Arctic region, where there is McGrath, Toke, Delta, Galena, Northeast, Fairbanks, and some other miscellaneous regions as well. So uh, each each uh, specific line item, like if you click on the Kotzebue area, Unit 23, and you can say Show Proposals. And they, again, this is all on the ADF&G website. Uh, there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. There are seven proposals for regulatory changes just for Unit 23. And so if you were to go and click on Proposal 38 for that PDF, the proposal goes as follows. Close all non-resident caribou hunting in Unit 23 as follows. For all of Unit 23, close all caribou hunts to non-residents. No open seasons are permitted. And this, uh, this goes for no open season, one bull, August 1st to September 30th. And this is for Unit 23, that portion north of and including the Singolic River. I hope I'm saying that right. And then also the remainder of Unit 23. So those are kind of the two regions mm-hmm. of Unit 23 that have the Western Arctic Caribou Herd hunt. And then it also in the proposal outline says, what is the issue you would like the board to address and why? And this is coming from the Northwest Arctic Regional Advisory Council. The Western Arctic Caribou Herd, WACH, population has been in decline for years, and the low population level in 2022 is cause for concern. This proposal would close hunting of caribou in Unit 23 year-round to non-resident hunters to help with conservation and recovery of the herd, although still providing some opportunity for resident hunters. The Northwest Arctic Council also submitted a proposal to reduce harvest limits for resident hunters. So it's not just a complete broad stroke of just a shot at non-residents. There are also proposals against residents as well to shorten their opportunities. Now, if you'll remember, I believe it was 2021, Mm -hmm. this same unit was closed uh, for a two-year closure, and I think it was federal but I don't remember exactly, and I was unable to find was that information right now. I know it was the same area. It was over by the no attack, wasn't it? I thought it may have been further north, but I may be wrong about that. That was over closer to the Hall Road on, the, on all that federal land? I, I think maybe. I okay, okay. I don't so, remember specifically what the area was, but... Yeah, so on the... Let's see here. There was a comment from one of the Hunt and Fool guys uh, he was answering a question. He said, the two-year federal land closure expires in 2023. This new proposal has been brought forward to close the entire unit, in parentheses, all lands for non-resident caribou hunting indefinitely. So that is one area that, that I agree with this guy that commented there, and, and that was written in by Austin Atkinson. 
uh, he's he guides up here and he also works with Hunt and Fool um, a lot. So what Austin said here is actually what caught my attention. This proposal did not show any end to this closure. It mm-hmm. doesn't really give a good explanation. Now, to clarify for people, really anybody can write in a proposal right. for these right for these regulatory changes. It doesn't mean that it's going to have any teeth in mm-hmm. front of the board of game. The board of game is going to sit down and convene and your your comment uh, deadline for this is, I believe, January 12th of 2024. I just had that pulled up and I lost it. But I, I, I believe it changes for different units. So like for the Western area, the deadline for your submissions, or, or, um, yeah, for your submissions was November 1st, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And sorry, I should have had this better outlined. I, I did have it all pulled up, and then I clicked the wrong button. So that's why Mariah should have done this for me. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, uh, the, the meeting dates uh, for the Kotzebue, yeah, the, the comment deadline for that one is January 28th. The Western Arctic Western Region is January 12th. And the comment deadline for Interior and Eastern Region Arctic is March 1st, and, the, and then it shows the locations of each of those uh, meeting dates. So, uh, yeah, that, so that there is definitely uh, some time for public comment, but I believe uh, agenda, agenda change request deadline, there it is, Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. So, uh, let's see, the Board of Game will meet via teleconference to consider agenda change requests following the November 1st deadline. So. The, the proposal deadline is up from what I understand, mm-hmm. um, but now it's public comment period. So this one in particular, uh, I, I believe probably has, um, probably has some teeth. Because, I think so. Because of who it was written in by, the Northwest Arctic Regional Advisory Council. I also like the fact that it gets the federal government out of it. It is it, it or is that it a does. federal? It leaves it to okay. the state because then okay. now it's a state regulation, not right. a federal right. regulation. For, for the board of game. And right. honestly, right. it's you're right. easy to change state regulations. Yeah, you are right. Yeah, you're 100% correct there. Um, so yeah, I, I think from that perspective, it is a step in the right direction mm-hmm. to put that power in the state's hands. Not to say that the feds won't close the federal land again as it already is right. because that two-year closure is about to be up. So we'll see what they do, but the state did leave the state land open, right? Yeah, I believe so. From from, yeah. from what I understand here, they want to close what was still open that that was state land out mm-hmm. in the Kotzebue area. So another few interesting proposals are some brown slash grizzly bear hunts uh, for seasons in uh, in parts of Unit Twenty uh, that want the season extended to June 15th. Now, we talked a lot about bear baiting here this last spring and expressed consistent, if not constant, disgust about grizzly bear season closing Mm -hmm. in a lot of units at the end of May and how all of us wish that we could shoot grizzly bears over bear bait if the season was extended to the end of June, just like black bear season is for our bear bait um, purposes. So there was a proposal from a few different um, private entities that, uh, that wanted the season extended till the end of June. But then there were two that stood out to me 
one of them proposed the extending of brown grizzly bear season to June 15th. And I thought, well, that's kind of an odd day to pick. But then I went over and clicked on the next proposal, and it was by uh, Fish and Game. And they proposed the extension of brown grizzly bear hunting to June 15th as well. So even though it's not the full month of June extension that we all have been wanting for the last... Step in the right direction. What, decade now that we've been working on this? uh, Bear baiting together and, and so on. Right. If not close to it. Uh, it's at least a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, two more weeks, you and I both know that there there have been a lot of times that two more weeks could have made the difference in killing Make grizzly bears difference. or not. Um, to the point where if we had grizzly bears hitting a bait consistently in the first week of June, we would just mm-hmm. pull the bait because no black bears were going to hit it, right? Right. So two more weeks would be uh, quite the incentivization program. Would be a, uh, <laughs> a game changer. Oh boy, there's my favorite term in the hunting industry, game changer. Game changer. I, I'm going to oh, go ahead and mention, I've noticed, I was looking through the other proposals. So that's proposal 38 with the caribou we were talking yes, about. Yeah, proposal, for the Kotzebue area. Proposal 39 is to lengthen the brown bear hunting season in unit 23 for residents to no close season, two bears every year. See, now that is good. The, exactly. Now, now, They're not just trying to close now down who, one part who of Who proposed that one? Was that the... Northwest Arctic Regional Advisory Council. That's a mouthful. Well, see, that is... I can almost get behind that then. Right. If they want to limit hunting for a short term Mm -hmm. and at the same time say, hey, kick this up a notch, everybody starts shooting more bears. Right. That could make a difference. They're also trying to reduce the bag limit for residents from five caribou per day to four caribou total. Okay. Only one of which may be a cow. Gotcha. Which doesn't seem like that big of a deal either. I'm not not really against that. I'm not a local there. Right, right. But four caribou can feed your family for a year right 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 and that's only if head of household goes out and hunts true exactly right true true so i if, i don't see how if husband wife son mm-hmm. daughter all hunt then that's you know, a potential of, right in the same you know um, 18 right well, no yeah 24 no, no, no. Four per person, yeah, you said. Yeah. Okay. Four, so, yeah. four total for the season. So at least, but, you know, eight to 12, you know, something in there because uh, there are a lot of families where there's more than one person in the household that shoots caribou. And that's also by N-A-R-A-C. N-W-A-R-A-C. N-W-A-R-C. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is a mouth. And Warwick. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, public comment does close here relatively soon. Uh, the meeting days are also on the Alaska Board of Game uh, cycle PDF. So if you have something that you want to comment on, or if mm-hmm. you're concerned about a proposal, be sure to get your comment in before that window is closed. And also don't forget to apply for your draw permits. I know we talked about that last we week. We did. But tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Have you com- applied for yours yet? Not yet. I'm still strategizing, my friend. Yeah, yeah I'm. I'm doing the same thing. Usually, I kind of try to plan my year in advance mm-hmm. tentatively, like what my guiding schedule is going to be. Oh, I see. Yeah. So on and so yeah, forth. And that way, I don't draw a great, let's just say, a great sheep permit right. when I'm scheduled to be gone guiding for the entire month. I'm probably going to be doing mostly low chance stuff just because. That's all I did. If last I get year. it, yeah. then it's more I can get to. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Right. There's some of the stuff that's a lot higher chance, like right. we talked about. Like, oh, I know, I would love to get one there. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, anyway, let's take a quick break and then we'll jump back in. 
Hammer Bullets produces what we at the Northern Hunter consider to be the most premium and best working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are easy to load, extremely accurate, and best of all, they're always in stock and ready to ship. The guys at Hammer designed them so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, it sheds its petals, initiating a massive energy dump while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration. These bullets are built with 100% focus on how they perform on game, and their proprietary designs produce great BCs with specialized pressure grooves for amazing inherent accuracy and speed. They have a minimum expansion velocity of 1800 feet per second, which allows for long range shots, but with no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 3030 to the high velocity round like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com and use discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER to drop the hammer on your next adventure. All right, so let's jump into a couple of listener emails that we got. These aren't really Alrighty. questions, but they're more of just kind of our public comment, if you will, for the Northern Hunter podcast. If, if you did write in a question, you're waiting for an answer. That'll come towards the end of the yeah. of this episode. Yep, yep, there you go. So Dan writes into the show, and he, uh, Dan had a lot of things to say, so I'm just going to kind of skim over the top here. He says, hi, guys, love the podcast. I've listened to most of them. That's quite the accomplishment, Dan. Mm-hmm. He says he's from uh, Wisconsin, I believe. He says, lifelong cheesehead. Yep, Wisconsin. With eight kids, one wife, we did it right. (laughs) I've hunted deer and bear in Wisconsin, elk in New Mexico and Colorado, wild hogs in Oklahoma, and antelope in Wyoming. Also, North Slope Hall Road Caribou Rifle March planned for 2025. African Plains Game is booked for 2026. I've been taking one kid on every experience, and it's been an awesome set of memories. I should have started the family hunting earlier. Right now, my eye is on Alaska for the expanding experience. I want to take my kids to share adventures and make memories. Keep up the great podcast, guys. Many thanks. So, the the first thing that Dan has to say here is wolves and bears. Wisconsin, we have wolves hitting the bear baits and on camera fighting and even killing bears also chasing the bear dogs and killing them while chasing a bear. In my opinion, the large bear's treeing may be based on survival from a wolf pack. They may not differentiate between dogs and wolves. That's kind of really what I was thinking with that. That's a very interesting observation there from his perspective. Now, we're going to come back to that one because we had another listener write in with a very similar observation. He goes on to say, uh, topic number two, ozonics. I did a guided archery elk hunt in Colorado, and the Ozonics crew was in camp. Uh, Ozonics crew, I guess they have a, a crowd of people. Uh, I assume it was from the company. Right. Right. be the same thing as like, you know, Mountain Ops crew, right? Right, right. He says, it was early archery and 90 degrees in the day, so we sat water holes. I was given an Ozonics to use in the blind. I was, at the time, a non-believer in Ozonics. The first night, I had three bull elk come in directly downwind, the closest bull being 10 feet in front of my bow, or in front of my front window. He turned and stared directly at me. Didn't bust me or wind me. Then the other two walked into the water. The wind was blowing through my two open windows directly to them. No way at that distance with my sweaty 100-degree blind body, they should have not winded me. 
I shot one right behind the water hole at 35 yards once they turned away, allowing me movement. So yes, either this was a fluke or Azonics works. I'm not 100% sure yet myself. This one is an anecdotal story. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, I, I know that we mentioned that uh, in, in relation to our friend Tyler right. Friel from Outdoor Life here in Fairbanks as well, but he really has come to trust the Ozonics unit when it's not too windy, but he uses them a lot for grizzly bear hunting. Mm-hmm. And he says that it, it seems to work pretty well. So that's, that's an interesting kind of a, you know, supporting story for the Ozonics. What I do find interesting is that it was in an enclosed space though. Yes, there were two windows, but I would imagine that it does an even better job in somewhat of a confined space like that. I read that email. That thought didn't occur to me. That's a good point. You know, had had you been sitting outside um, and possibly a little bit more exposed where there's a little bit more Mm -hmm. of a breeze, then that might not have been quite as effective. But still, nonetheless, there have been plenty of animals that have busted people from enclosed blinds before when Ozonics haven't been used. Right. And I'm sure there's been some that have been busted when they have been in use as well. But it's an interesting point and something to consider if you're looking for a piece of kit to try out, mm-hmm. whether it's for deer hunting from a stand or elk hunting over a water hole or grizzly bear hunting over a bear bait in Alaska. We have another one here uh, coming from Ed. Following up on bears with wolves. Gentlemen, reference some questions you had about my last correspondence regarding to the black bears treeing and letting the wolves clean up the mess for them. First off, I'm not the expert in the group I hunt with, but the guys that I hunt with have been hunting bears with hounds their entire life, and it's a steep learning curve when they take you under their wing and let you hunt with them. However, I've been hunting with hounds since I was a kid and have been in the woods basically since birth way back in 72. Beagles on hair worked attack dogs in the U.S. Air Force, almost made it to Alaska, but rerouted to Panama in 93, and I've been running bears since about 2010. I hunt bears exclusively in the UP of Michigan, and he names a a specific unit that we won't uh, expose there. Grew up there on the Big Lake and plan to move back when I retire from my temporary exile below the bridge. Wolves in Michigan were extirpated from the lower 48 in 1935, and then, I'm sorry, not from the lower 48, from the lower, I assume, of Michigan in 1935, and then in the UP around 1960. Efforts to reintroduce them happened in the 70s, but the locals weeded them out, in quotation marks. (laughs) Then also in quotes, allegedly, they started to migrate back to the UP in the early 80s, but with all the time I've spent in the woods growing up, I had never seen or heard a wolf or witnessed any evidence of them until 1995. And if you know a DNR officer, they will tell you that they trapped and released them around that time frame. Running bears with hounds has been a long tradition in Michigan for as long as I can recall. And my grandfather ran them with blue ticks back in the 40s and 50s. So it's nothing new for bears to have a hound or cur on his tail come September. As you all know, that wolves will kill and hunt any subordinate canine in their area. So when the hound cut loose and starts running the bear through their territory, they will actively start to hunt the dogs until they leave their territory. If they catch up with the dogs, they will kill the ones they can get a hold of. Hounds will sometimes act like migrating geese while hunting in a pack. If the lead hound gets tired, the other will take the lead and the wolves will be able to pick off the dog in the rear. 
Or like I mentioned, if a bear trees the wolf's territory, they will attack the dogs that are at the bottom of the tree baying the bear. And then he kind of goes on and, and talks about a few different things here. So Ed had written in before and talked about hounds getting targeted, I believe, by wolves. Wasn't that part of his previous email? I think we'd have to dig back through the archives there to yeah. find that one. But he was talking about bears treeing mm-hmm. when they never used to tree. And he attributed that to wolves. Right. Um, so that, that's, it, it is interesting to think about. But uh, I, there's not a whole lot of information that we can draw off of from Alaska. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe hound hunting is a legal practice for bears in Alaska, is it? No. I believe it's just for blood trailing. I believe it. Yes, you believe yeah. you're right. Yeah. So there are a lot of states dealing with the reintroduction of wolves right now, and um, it sounds like the the majority of the hunting community is probably against it. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that's that, that seems to be the consensus of, of most folks down there. You know, there's there's a lot of, and not not everybody's against it. I think a lot of people don't like the fact that they regulate them too long just like bears. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we don't have to get into all of that, but I mean, we look at up here, there's, there's wolves. They're not everywhere and they're not a problem. Right. Right. And I think primarily since you, since you brought it up, I think primarily there is a major issue with not having wolves when they were originally part of the landscape, mm. but it changes everything from the way it's been for the last right. 50 to a hundred years. Right. Right. I mean, there's some major, major issues. Um, coyotes mm. take off in abundance. And the reason that coyote hunting is like it is in a lot of the states is because there's no wolves to protect their territory, right? We don't have coyotes in large numbers up here. Well. Compared to yeah, the lower yeah, 48, yeah. right? Yeah, compared to the lower 48. And why is that? Wolves. Wolves, exactly. <laughs> and, and probably habitat limitations as well. To, to an extent, right? Yeah. But there's other issues that are happening because of that too because right. there's no wolves because there's no wolves the coyotes took just you can you know and you can look at the history yeah. where at when the wolves got killed you can see where the coyotes started just expand and these and, and they're moving into uh suburban areas mm-hmm. killing people's pets S- suburban or urban both suburban yeah like chevy suburban oh come on <laughs> Uh, not necessarily I, I, urban, but suburban areas. I would say that just from the limited amount of experience that I have trying to figure out that the differences between where I find wolves and where I find coyotes, one of the areas where I find wolves and coyotes is the same area. Yeah. I mean, most of the state's that way, but Heavily. the difference is the number of coyotes in that area. But the most coyotes I've ever seen in the state, mm-hmm. and I see them there every year, multiples of them. I, I, you hardly go a day without seeing coyotes oftentimes more than one, and there are no wolves there. And it is not ideal coyote habitat. Really? It's very interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to tell you where this is at after, hmm. we, after we hit the big red button here. But it, right. it's, it's a very interesting um, expansion of coyotes into that part of the state. It's, it's not a place that I would have ever expected to see coyotes, and I see them all the time. Really? Yeah. It's very strange. Well, you know, it's amazing how things change, even when yeah. stuff hasn't changed. Right. You know, right. like wolves eating sea otters. Yeah, or like, coyotes eating sheep. Wow. Well, yeah. 
I was listening to a different podcast here just this last week, and 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 uh, and someone was interviewing a, a, an old fish and game biologist. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe he was from Fairbanks, uh, and th- and we're talking about like back in the day fish and game biologist, mm-hmm. and he was talking about uh, some of the old data supporting that coyotes kill lambs in sheep country. Um, and that was after some agricultural development had been done in that part of the state. Oh. You know where I'm talking about. And they were able to find a lot of evidence of coyotes expanding to the point where they went up into the mountains, started killing sheep. So it's, it's very interesting to see kind of their expansion here um, just within our state. But again, we have gotten a few different emails from listeners um, concerning bear and wolf interaction and then wolf and, 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 and tracking dog interaction and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and just kind of the corresponding relations there. So it's interesting to talk about, but we really it don't is. have a leg to stand on up here uh, because we can't really right. hound hunt. And, you know, I've thought about that before. I'm not so sure that I would love black bear hunting with hounds up here. From it would just take you so long to get to where they would tree a bear, you know. You, know, well, you think about the brush and the blowdown and I the think burns that's kind of and the, the point. terrain. I think like, that's kind of the point. I, I suppose, but is is the fact that it, it they don't it's not done because it's an easy thing to do. No, no, by right? far not. Yeah, it's effective. Yeah, and it's a pretty sure way of seeing. You're saying I'm going to see bears today. Whether I don't shoot any of well, them or not, if, yeah. if it's something, if you have a good pack and you're, you know, you're good at it, there's yeah. a lot of guys that do it and they'll see bears. They don't necessarily pick one out. Right. Right. But. As long as you can get to that bear before it kills <laughs> your dogs, which is what this guy's talking about. True. True. Well, and would you, you know, could you train bears, dogs to only tree black bears? Mm. Yeah, that's, that'd be a question for a houndsman. It would be. <laughs> and, and perhaps you can. I would imagine with the right dog, maybe. you could. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, I mean, if you send your dogs out there and they take off after a grizzly bear track. Yeah. Goodness knows those grizzly bears smell different than black bears. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, if you and I can smell one coming in upwind right, of us, right. then uh, I'm pretty sure a dog can. But So anyway, Ed ends his email and says, again, a great show and I look forward to it. You have me buying scent from Batum 907 and looking hard at hammer bullets for my 300 wind mag and 35 wheeling. Free tip. Make sure you know exactly where you put that nasty boar stuff when you bait your sight. If you happen to get that stuff on your pant leg by accident, your wife will throw out your good hunting pants. Just ask me how I know. <laughs> you know I, uh, I took that kid out with me this last baiting season. Yeah. And uh, I opened up, I got the nasty boar out and I opened it up and said, hey, smell this. He stuck his nose right <laughs> in on top. It took a big old whiff. <laughs> Cashed in your courtesy sniff, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody has to go through that at some point with, with introduction to bear baiting. Uh, hey, it, I'm just saying, nasty boar is worth buying Yeah, just to get your friends to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great Christmas gift, oh, yeah. but don't put it in the stocking inside. <laughs> Maybe put it in some Easter egg hunts out in the snowbanks in the springtime. Just put a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll never forget where your eggs are. All right, on to the main topic today. We have one more listener email that we'll get to at the end of today's episode just briefly. We won't have time for an entire topic on that subject Mm -hmm. this week, but we'll get to it at some point. So last week we talked about choosing some new items, right? It's the sale. It's the sale season. It's discount season, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and uh, everybody online is all sending sales and holiday sales. Yeah, New Year's and new product releases, and everybody 
bonuses. It feels like they have money to burn. And yeah, hopefully you get a Christmas bonus and things like that. So where should you spend your hard-earned money? Besides the Northern Hunter merchandise shop. Yeah. (laughs) Make sure you get the entire family in all sizes a Northern Hunter hoodie. But besides that, we talked about clothing, sleeping bags, uh, tents, things like that Mm -hmm. last week. But this week, and we didn't have time last week to kind of cover this, but we wanted to talk about because we get asked a lot of questions about this. Guns and optics, and ammunition for Alaska. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to talk about today. And James is going to very likely um, heavily regret not being here you for know, this one. I thought about texting him that we were going to talk about <laughs> his favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I was, thought I was going to text him. When he said he couldn't make it, I thought about sending, don't worry, we'll make sure to cover monolithic <laughs> and, uh, and bonded bullets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. James used to be completely against mono metal bullets until we started working with hammer bullets, and, and now he has changed his tune. He likes hammer bullets, so he does. He does. So choosing a rifle for Alaska, probably one of the more common things that anybody gets asked about hunting in Alaska. What gun should I bring? Mm-hmm. And considering that it's purchasing time of year, you're going to find some sales. You're going to find some yeah. new releases. Um, there have been a couple of new cartridge releases this year from a few different companies. Um, probably the biggest one, uh, I, I believe this one was this year's a 7PRC. Either from, this year or last, when, last, it was last yeah, winter, so. Yeah, okay, so, but. No, it was last year. Was it? Yeah, I remember. Okay, so, but we didn't see rifles and ammunition on the shelves until this year. Okay, I mean, I haven't even been looking for it, so. I've seen 7PRC around. Have you? Yep, I saw some at. I think I My saw favorite some the other day, too. The other day. Which is your favorite store? The new one. The new... The like, new location. The new location. Okay. Yes. I, you know, yeah. I've been in there every week. <laughs> <laughs> Me, too. For the past month. Yeah. As soon as I got home from, from guiding in October, I, I went to the new store, and it's fantastic. You know, maybe we, we just won't mention their name on here until uh, we get, you know... Well... We gotta get... Nah. Yeah. It's Alaska ammo. It is Alaska ammo <laughs> with the shooting range in there. I haven't even used the shooting range yet. But. They have a little education office room and everything, and they have like what, yeah. five lanes, Roger said. I was oh, just I in there lanes, but Saturday night. I went in there. I did again. ask. It's, uh, I mean, hey, you know, I like them. They're good. Place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're local and yeah. you want a place to go shoot indoors, yeah. You know, just to check how stuff, how stuff shoots, you know, if you want to check some velocities on something without being outside. Mm, yeah, it's not you a could bad probably idea. just set up a chrono. You can shoot up to fifty BMG, and you can take your new Garmin Zero. There you in go. There yeah, to test your velocities. Oh. Speaking of new gear, yeah, I doubt we're going to see discounts on that one anytime soon. <laughs> Brand new, uh, new chronograph setup. Looks from, like the best of the best, and it's priced yeah. very reasonably, right around what the. It's about what Lab Radar always. It's was. about what Lab Radar is, yeah. and uh, and it looks like it beats Lab Radar and all the other. Yeah. And Radar-based ones. Yep. I just listened to a, a to a comprehensive review okay. on, on another podcast about it. I've watched several reviews, yeah. several short and long-form yeah. reviews on YouTube channels and yep. such. And yep. it's, it's not, I mean, it's within, you know, one to two FPS of, say, the magneto speed, which a lot of guys like for its, um, uh, for how, its accuracy. Mm. You're going to get 100% accuracy, I guess, on the magneto speed over a, a radar-based so John Snow was uh, was talking about it. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the guys for outdoor, mm-hmm. and he said 
that it was compared side by side with Hornady's Doppler radar. I mean, that's what it is. It is a Doppler radar. And that's no distinguishable difference. That what Hornady uses? Yeah. To test their stuff? Yeah. I mean, from what I've from what I've seen is it is extremely accurate. It has and Hornady no Doppler radar ain't six hundred dollars. I mean, <laughs> is that something they sell, or is this what no, they used to no, test? No, no, no. This is how they develop the heat shield tip for okay, the ELDX. Okay. And okay. This is how they test all their long range. I was, okay, I, was saying, I uh, haven't heard of ballistic it. coefficients it, so. and all, all things. Yeah, and that, that's where they get all their data to mm-hmm. develop for their Hornady uh, ballistics app. Right, their, their Ford off solutions for ballistics. So, yeah, compared against literal space age technology. Um, you know, it, comparatively speaking, it, it has the same results. Yeah. So, and it's the size of a little bigger than your GoPro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's very user friendly. It has an app that'll link to your phone that yeah. you can look at all your you data. You can save on all there. your data to your phone just yeah. as you shoot. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, and really nice intuitive technology. Might have to go for an upgrade over the old lab radar, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. So, Garmin, if you're listening, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, choosing a rifle for Alaska. Yeah. Number one feature, hit me with one. If you're looking for a hunt in Alaska, mm-hmm. let, let's just say, uh, well, not even species specific, but we'll say interior, okay. and, and you don't live in Alaska, and you say, I'm going to buy a new gun this holiday season, what's the first feature that you're going to go with? Ammunition availability. That's practical, all right. I'm just, I'm trying to think of what I... Yeah, I mean, if if I am just buying a new rifle, yeah, to go to Alaska. Now, why would you think about ammunition availability? Well, I shoot a three hundred Winchester short magnum, which is an excellent cartridge. I think it was made well ahead of its time. The more I have personally reloaded for it, the more I like it. Yeah, it, you can out shoot, you can outperform a, a three hundred. Wind mag, and, and depending on your bullets and in, your powder. In factory loadings for the wind mag, yes. In, in hand loads. You uh, can outperform fairly easily. Factory reloadings, you're going to, depends in, on. In some weight classes, yeah. Right. You can out, well, in a lighter. Yeah. In a lighter bolt, in a lighter rifle too. Yeah. Because it's a short yeah, action. Short crew, action. Right. Right. Yeah. So I really like my 300 short mag. In fact, I love it. It's yeah. an awesome rifle. I don't recommend buying one if you're getting ready to come to Alaska unless you are reloading for it well ahead of time mm. and have the brass because I mean it's it's a whole nother reloading is a whole nother we're going to talk about it later yeah but it, it it takes you know shooting and sighting in and just it takes all that and it adds right it three or four times the amount of work you have to do you to be either, ready for a hunt yeah you either have the time and the ability to do it or you don't you, you can't get into it halfway and then well yeah. I don't really want to do that right because right. then you put yourself in a bad situation with a gun that you can't buy factory ammo for but you don't want to reload so for it. if I was going to buy, do you want me to just name the cartridge? Yeah, yeah. 300 PRC. Really? Really. Because... Boy, that's a surprise. I mean, I have a lot of... I, I, I've nerd, started to really nerd out on custom guns and uh, Wildcat cartridges. Okay. and I should specify, it's a surprise that you said that. It's not a bad answer. Right, right. But, I, I know that's what but, you meant. Yeah. But knowing you and, and traditionally what you would have said, that's not what I expected you to say. I originally was thinking 30-06. Okay. But you can get a lot better performance. Yeah. And, you know, you can reach out. You can reach out further and you'll be more effective at close range, especially for interior Alaska. I would say caribou, moose, black bear, grizzly bear. Yeah. Um. 
there's nothing that you're going to worry about destroying at close range. Yeah. Right. There's nothing that you got to, you know, in all with on all of those, you could shoot easily shoot it. If you, if you are, if you know what you're doing and you can shoot four or 500 yards would be a piece of cake. Yeah. Right. With the right loads, factory loads, especially. And there's going to be good factory loads for that cartridge. Yes. There definitely already are good factory loads available Mm -hmm. for the 300 PRC. Pretty much any time Hornady puts out a cartridge, it has the ammunition and bullet selection to back that cartridge availability. Right. That way it doesn't, uh, well, I I, I don't want to dog on anybody else in the hunting industry for (laughs) how they released a specific cartridge, but we have seen it happen even in more recent years Mm -hmm. where a company will release a new cartridge and you'll see guns hit the shelves before the ammo does. And the ammo doesn't show up for months. Mm-hmm. And it's available online, but there are a lot of guys that that live in Alaska that don't that either don't or can't buy mm-hmm. ammo and ship it to Alaska. Right? There are a few, very select few ways that you can get ammo to Alaska for the common man. Right? Right. And a lot of folks don't do that, or they don't know how to do it. So, cartridge availability is a big one. Yeah. And when you're looking at a Hornady. Uh, manufactured cartridge that's loaded with with Hornady bullets, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the ELDX, the ELD match, or the CX, which is their mono metal bullet. Right. Those pretty much cover all your bases. They do. And a 300 PRC is not a bad choice at all. It's not an ultra fast cartridge. It's not. It's a it, it's a relatively moderate cartridge as far as speed goes, but that's not what it's designed around. It's not a 30 nozzler, which is right. faster, but cannot shoot the ultra heavy high BC bullets in its weight class, the 300 PRC factory loads start at 212. Mm-hmm. A 300 Win Mag starts at 165 or 180, depending right. on what you have available regionally. But the 300 PRC is a tighter twist barrel, an optimized throat and chamber design yeah. to match those long, heavy. Uh, weight class high BC bullets, right? Which is all built to extend your range overall and improve your efficiency of the cartridge. Right. So you don't need to start out at th- at thirty three hundred feet per second. Mm-hmm. You can start out at twenty nine fifty or three thousand. And by the time, let's say, a three hundred ultra mag with a traditional one eighty grain bullet gets to five hundred yards, that slower three hundred PRC with the same weight bullet. Mm-hmm. But in a better optimized design, will surpass it. Right. Even with a slower muzzle velocity, at a certain point, usually around that four or five hundred yard mark, a more uh, efficient bullet design mm-hmm. will surpass. You can even see that happen with like a six five PRC compared with three hundred Win Mag. The six five PRC with a one forty three grain ELDX will surpass a three hundred Win Mag with right. like a one eighty grain Acubond, which is not a bad bullet ballistically either. But around four or five hundred yards, the six five PRC has more velocity and more energy retained, and less wind drift. Mm-hmm. So you can argue about frontal diameter and expansion and displacement once it enters the animal. But really, is the caribou going to know the difference? Right. Well, <laughs> probably since, not. Since I just bought, or I just bought an upper for a six millimeter arc. Yeah. Right, and it yep. was designed for the AR platform to be able to go into an AR that you know, aside from your upper, that would normally shoot a five five six. Yep. And the bullet. Uh, can it? It's a lot bigger. It's a lot heavier, 
Yeah. But it will outperform that 5.56 all day long. Right. Exactly. I'll bet it'll even outperform my 243 Winchester with the it's right It's not bullets. designed for speed. Well, neither. Well, yeah. Compared to 243 Winchester, will shoot hotter loads all day. But with what weight bullets? And can I stabilize the I don't heavy, know high weight bullets? The, I don't know. I mean, the heaviest bullet you're really shooting at a six arc is around 100 grain. Yeah, Maybe I, 110, I, 108. I've, I've never big... shot anything over 100 grains, and, and rarely okay. even that. My hand loads are 80 grains. I mean, since we're talking about six millimeter, I can't, if you're going to, if you want to get a six millimeter for a, for, um, for, for a modern six millimeter cartridge mm-hmm. that is going to do what we're talking about, yeah. you want a six grade more probably. For a bolt gun? If you yeah, bolt gun, right. If you want to, if you want a 243 rifle yeah. that yeah. can handle the heavy for class bullets, yeah. six grade more is going to have your faster twist yeah. rate. Yeah. I think they're making them at like one and seven and a half. Yeah. Which is the same twist rate as my six arc, but it's yeah. going to, it'll push a little faster than a 243 Winchester. Gotcha. But you'll be able to put a lot heavier bullets and stabilize them a lot better in it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I was looking at that when I was thinking about it, getting a six millimeter bolt rifle. That six Creedmoor seems to be a very popular deer and antelope cartridge it would in the be lower a good 48. One, yeah. I think that'd be a great blacktail deer round. Right. Well, back we are in the loops. 300 PRC. Okay. So 300 PRC. Now you kind of jumped ahead of me here. I did. You went straight to cartridges. So rifle characteristics, get to ammo and cartridges later, but rifle characteristics, I would say the number one thing that you need to think about in Alaska is reliability. Yeah. Now there are a lot of other important factors. Okay. Mm -hmm. We'll just name a few of them. Shootability, um, weight and balance. Say weight was another big one for me. And, uh, you know, and that, that even just weight and balance includes stock design and, um, barrel length Mm -hmm. and then shootability is your recoil and well, yeah, recoil. Some people, some people love to just uh, completely ignore recoil and say, "Well, as long as you have a, a nice muzzle brake or a big suppressor on it, then you know recoil is not an option. No, no, it, it shouldn't even be a consideration, mm-hmm. right? That's just simply not true. Right. There are some people that either can't afford to buy a suppressor or can't afford the time. If you're coming right. to Alaska in three months to hunt something. In the imminent future, right? You, yeah. And, and you're going to buy a gun three months before your hunt and you don't already own a suppressor, uh, you're not going to have one in time. Right. <laughs> so a suppressor is not always an option and maybe you don't want to hunt with a muzzle brake. And I can't blame you for that right. either because muzzle brakes are just about set you oh. back 500 years. And even a... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just caught that, yeah. didn't you? Even even a, a, a large caliber rifle yeah. uh, with a muzzle brake you know, any Magnum rifle with a muzzle brake can still kick oh, yeah. really hard. And if you're a small person, right? you know, so what if you can handle it? If it sets you down on your butt every time you pull the trigger. <laughs> or if the recoil comes up so high yeah. a- after you take a shot that it takes you two or three seconds to mm-hmm. refine the animal in your scope. Right. What good is it? Right. right. So, so, so you're better off either upping your rifle weight to try to yeah. better manage that recoil. And that's something that if, if you look at a lot of older information as far as shootability goes, especially like in the 375 and 416s and, and, and some of the Africa dangerous mm-hmm. game rounds, a lot of those guys, and, and this is still true today, I shouldn't say that it's an old uh, mindset, but even a lot of guys today, like African PHs will say, mm-hmm. you need to have this cartridge, this bullet weight, in at least this weight rifle. So like a 458 lot 
with mm-hmm. a 500 grain bullet going whatever it is, like 2,300 or 2,400 feet per second, which holy smokes, you better just be wearing your seat pad because <laughs> you might tip over on it when you shoot. But they recommend that cartridge, that bullet weight, but mm-hmm. at least in a 12-pound gun or a 13-pound right. gun because anything less than that and it's going to kick the snot out of you, right? It, it, it'll rattle your feelings loose. So those are all things to consider to think about how you're going to build that gun. Mm-hmm. Are you going to shoot it with a brake? Are you going to shoot it with a suppressor? All right. Well, no brake, no suppressor. So I'm getting the full effect of that recoil. Right. So how heavy is this gun? Well, and that's where a lot of guys want a shorter rifle. Yeah. Like like you like, mm-hmm. right? For, you know, it swings around faster. It doesn't hit the brush so much. But in the interior. It's not a consideration. It's not that big of a that deal. Big of a deal. Yeah. In a, you know, a nice 26 or 28 inch barrel, it's going to help you with your recoil. A lot. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot more accurate of a rifle. I, I, I don't I, say a lot more accurate, yeah. but you're going to get, you know, higher velocities. Right, and, right. right. It, yes. You're going to take full advantage of your cartridge's capabilities. Right, right. So finding the right balance for a gun and, and excluding cartridges at this point, but finding a gun mm-hmm. that feels good in the hands, that shoulders quickly, that is well, well built, well balanced, that you can run quickly. but at the end of the day, my number one consideration for a gun to hunt Alaska is reliability. And I know yeah, we said that true. first, but that's the number one thing that I look at. What type of action is it? Is it mm-hmm. control round feed or is it a push feed? Okay, well, it's a control round feed. Well, is it a full control round feed or is it some three lug knockoff version of a control round feed? A classic example of an action like that is the Mauser action versus the, let's say, the Seiko 85 action, which was discontinued recently. So the Mauser action is a two-lug with a full-length claw extractor and a fixed-blade ejector in in Mm -hmm. the rear of the action. So that that case was grabbed from the time that it slid up onto the bolt face until you pulled it all the way back with enough force to hit that rear blade ejector to throw that case out of the um, out of the port of the rifle, and then you could push it forward and feed another one. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can have the rifle at any angle, and you can feed it upside down. Right? That was the original um, design. Right? And 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 that Mauser action uh, has been around for a long time. Right. And it's been regarded as the best action for dangerous game rifles. Because there used to be, uh, and this is not from firsthand experience, but there used to be a lot of problems, according to a lot of sources, with push feed actions in the early days. Because if you fed it the wrong way, you know, if you were feeding it sideways mm-hmm. or tipped one way or the other, then it would push that round out and the round could, could in theory, just pop out. I think a lot of modern push feeds have fixed that issue. I've never had that issue. I've never had that issue. And if you think about how most of the modern push feeds work, especially with a magazine, mm. right? Yep. is they uh, the magazine holds even the back of the of the cartridge yes. until it's well into the chamber. Right, exactly. So I'm not sure if that's been changed over time, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. or if that's simply was never a big deal and people just turned it into a selling point for a, for a control feed action. Right. But back to the control feed versus like a knockoff, if you will. And, and this is not a dig against Seiko or, or Sako for that matter. Um, but the Seiko action has three lugs, okay? Like a pyramid. Okay. Triangle shape, if you're looking at the bolt face. Mm -hmm. 
but the bottom of that bolt face is not uh, full length rounded like a push feed Remington mm-hmm. 700 clone is. It's got an open face um, on the bottom of the bolt face. Okay. And it also has a notch cut through it, just like the Model 70 action would be on a control feed. But that blade ejector did not come in from the bottom diagonal side onto a slot. Mm-hmm. It comes in directly on the bottom of the bolt face. So when you grab that round, it does push it up. It doesn't have control of the round the entire way, though. When it pops up, you still have to close that bolt for that extractor to grab, mm-hmm. the, um, to grab that rim. Right. And then when you pull it back, when you get all the way back, it hits that fixed blade ejector. The problem was, and this is why they discontinued it, was that fixed blade ejector being on the bottom of that triangle, right on the bottom of the round at mm-hmm. 6 o'clock, would kick that brass up. Yeah, I understand that. Instead of out and away. Yeah. And so, as a result of that, kicking the brass directly up results in the brass hitting the windage turret on your scope. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys had problems with that. I have a 30 out 6 and a Seiko 85. And I have tried many, many different um, loading speeds and cycling that gun mm-hmm. and trying to spit the brass out and get it to do it. I've only ever gotten it to to kick the brass up and hit the turret and then bounce back in like a handful of times. Most of the time, probably 98% of the time, it spits that brass out and then it goes completely, you know, way off into la-la land like a fixed blade ejector is normally supposed to do mm-hmm. because you ram it back with that much force, it really kicks that spent brass way out, right? Right. But on the longer case designs, like the 375 H&H, it mm-hmm. was specifically a real problem with those Magnum cartridges where they got longer overall cases. And so as a result of that, Seiko discontinued the Seiko 85 action. And now it's the S90 action, I believe it is. Okay. And I haven't had the chance to look at one yet. I, I don't know when they're going to hit the market. I, I've seen a few videos of them in circulation at this point, but I haven't had the chance to look into them that deeply yet. So that's kind of all to wrap back and say modern push feeds or control feeds. I don't think that's where you should spend the majority of your you know, time I was deciding. Say, I don't have a control feed at all that I own. Yeah. I've never had an issue with a push feed. Yeah. Neither have I. When I was shooting a control feed, you know, if I was using somebody's rifle. I didn't even know that that's what the difference was. Yeah. Right. Right. Ruger had a control feed at one point, didn't Ru- they? Yes. Ruger's Hawkeye action. I, I, my 375 Ruger. It, it's, Did the it, M77 have that same action? Uh, the M77. Because the Hawkeye is a new version of the. Yes. So the, the, there was the M77 and there was the Mark II as mm-hmm. well. And one of them had a full length uh, claw extractor. Okay. But it was a push feed. No, no, no. I, I, I'm getting this wrong. It was some of the old Tang safety models. It had one of those features, but not the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. So it had like a full-length claw extractor, but it still had um, like a 700-style ejector. Okay. Like that recessed uh, sprung see, pin I, uh, on the bolt face. Speaking of Alaska ammo, I saw one of those M77s over there. Did you? Yeah, stainless laminated stock. Beautiful gun. 17 HMR. Oh, yeah, I saw that one, too. $1,250 for somebody who wants to add that to their collection. But thinking about it, that may have been a control. I don't know if it was a control feed. I think that one's a control feed. 
It looked like so it was. I was looking at the design at of the bolt point, and I thought it was really interesting. At some point, in a, they, in a rim fire. Yeah. At some point, they went from the full length extractor, but the um, 700 style ejector mm-hmm. all the way over to a full control feed. And I, okay. don't, I don't know where they made that switch. I, I'm not all schooled up on the historical Ruger actions. Mm-hmm. I had one in 300 Wind Mag for my first gun um, that since That's right. took a trip in the Never Never Land. That's a sad story, but story for another time. Maybe in the field disasters episode, we can put that one in there at some point. But Oh, that's right. But all the Ruger, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I remember that now. All the Rugers now, uh, well, okay, not all the Rugers, like mm-hmm. the American or, or the whatever, um, but the Hawkeyes now yeah. are the continuation of like that M77 and Mark II line era. Right. And now they are a three-position wing safety like a Model 70. And they are a full control round feed, which is what my 375 Ruger is. So that's a that's a nice, somewhat affordable gun. Mm-hmm. But they're built like, well, they're built like they're built out of bricks. They're right. heavy. They're dense guns. Good luck breaking one. Mm-hmm. But it's not a gun that I'd want to take sheep hunting. Right. Um, so and at, at what point can you overthink reliability to the point that you compromise uh, overall, right desire to carry the gun in the field. That's what I say. Have I ever had an issue with my Tika? <laughs> exactly. Neither have I. Um, and so, just to go off of that, if you're looking at push feed actions, there are a couple different options there too. For instance, I've owned a Christensen Mesa seven rem mag for yeah. a yeah. long time. Mm-hmm. I've had that gun. I I don't even know what year I bought it, but it's been a long time now. And I've shot an absolute ton of animals with it. My wife has shot game with it. Um, my buddy Remy has shot game with it before when he's brought his bow and then recanted to his you know, old ways and shot animals with a gun. <laughs> he used my gun. And I've shot a bunch of animals with it. And I have never had a malfunction with that gun, ever. But that one is a push feed, but it has dual ejectors. Okay. So it has two of those little sprung pins on the bolt face, if you will. And those ejectors are both fairly stout for what they are. Uh, Some people complain about weak brass ejection out of a push feed. And that was kind of a complaint that I've Mm -hmm. seen about some of the older push feeds where it wasn't a strong enough ejector spring. And that I I, I haven't had that issue. I haven't had that issue on my Tika, which only has one ejector. Yours only has one ejector. Yeah. Uh, that's just how Tika makes them, and that's the that's what we would call like the classic 700 style push feed action. Uh, so that, my Christensen has two ejectors, and it it ejects brass with authority. Um, and and I did mount one scope a little bit low on that gun one time, and the windage turret stuck out a little bit more than probably average would, mm-hmm. and it would ping off that that windage turret every once in a while, but it never bounced it back into the back into the gun to to jam it. So. Action design is is not as big of a concern as some people would lead you to believe. If you look up dangerous game hunting rifles, like for mm-hmm. Africa, all you're going to find is control feed suggestions. And control feed and double rifles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, for Alaska, you're not looking at options like that. N- number one, the rifles that you are going to be looking for for hunting in Alaska, let's just say 270, 30-06, 7-rem mag, 300 wind mag, mm-hmm. and things of that nature probably 90 plus percent of the market share for what's going to be available is going to be in push feed guns. Mm-hmm. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. So don't, don't be swayed one way or the other 
Um, whether it be Mark fives are push feed actions. Oh, are they? Yeah. And I used I one guiding. I, I used one guiding for the majority of this mm-hmm. year's hunting that I did in that 338 RPM. And I ran that thing like I stole it. Um, you know, you, you shoot you shoot a brown bear to back somebody up when it's heading right. off for the brush. You're not running that bolt slowly and trying to catch your brass. Um, you're running it like you're trying to rip the handle off of it. Mm-hmm. And it never malfunctioned. It never missed a beat. So, and it's easy to just overthink. Well, you know, I could see a bear, so I need to think about the ultimate reliability in an action. Well, if you're looking at a control round feed gun, that's great, but how much does it weigh? And is it the cartridge that you really want to shoot? And not to knock against some of the control feed options out there, Mm -hmm. but um, a lot of the push feed guns that are out there are great shooting guns. And you hear a lot more about some of these overbuilt tough rifles that don't have as good accuracy standards as some of the push feed guns do. Interesting. I've had some experiences with that, and I, I'm not going to dog on one brand or the other and 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 huh. explain all those different results. But all I've right. had I've had more picky accuracy problems with some controlled feed guns. I don't know if there's just a little bit more play in those actions in the bolt face, just built differently to accept more dirt and dust and grime and still run, and to be able to grab the face of the cartridge when you yeah cycle sure. Right? So I, I, I can't speak um, well enough to the subject yet, mm-hmm. but I do know that all my push feed guns have always been, on average, much easier to get good groups out of. Interesting. So. You know, I, um, if you say that, I mean, I, a lot of most, if not all, well, not all, but almost all the builds, you know, you see somebody making, doing a build for accuracy, mm-hmm. you know, shooting long range. What are they building on? Um, like a defiance action, a Remington seven hundred, yeah, uh, yeah. of some seven hundred blueprint or yeah, seven hundred you know, blueprint or clone action, right. yeah. It there and there's a million of them out there. Yeah, that's what everybody makes. Yep, they're easy to build on. Yep. There's stocks, options, everything you want for it, right? Yep. And hey, I mean, if all you're gonna do is sit on a bench and shoot, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I can see some even if you're hunting up, here. even if you're hunting, it, but you know, and some of the safeties on them. Are, are are what they lack the most. Okay. Um, James had an issue with his safety on his You know, th- see, that's a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Let's, yeah, let's jump off the diving board and do okay. this. Okay, was it? This going is actually to, but... something that I was going to bring up. When you're considering a push feed action, mm-hmm. the majority of those are going to have a two-position Remington 700-esque style of safety, where in the rear position, the gun will not fire. It mm-hmm. is safe. However, the bolt will still operate. Right. Pull forward, the bolt will obviously operate, and the gun will fire. On a lot of the control feed actions, because they're trying to kind of duplicate that old pre-64 Winchester Model 70 style of control feed design, they have a three-position wing safety, where position number three all the way back is the hammer, I'm sorry, the hammer, the bolt is locked, closed, and the trigger will not obviously fire. In the middle position, number two, the bolt will operate, so you can load and unload the gun without it being on fire, and it will obviously not fire in position number two in the middle. Mm -hmm. On full forward, position number one, the gun will go off. So there is a safety aspect to that, where if you're walking through the brush, 
Uh, there are a lot of people that swear by a three-position safety just because they know that their bolt will not accidentally come open and hook on their pack right. strap or hook on a an alder brush or something and 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 jack that bolt open and therefore possibly expose your chamber to some dirt or grime or mud or snow or whatever it might be. Or if you're carrying around in the chamber for some reason, mm-hmm. it won't throw your bolt open and then you jack that round out and you lose it. And then if you have to grab your gun in an emergency situation, right. you grab that gun off your pack and you need to shoot and the bolt's open and you have to, have, you have to rack a new round in the chamber. Mm-hmm. So what James had talked about is he had a Bergara 300 wind mag. Mm-hmm. and the Bergara is a 700-style clone with a two-position safety where it does not lock the bolt down. Tikas have a two-position safety, but the Tikas locks the bolt down while it's on safe. Right. Which I really like that feature. Yeah, I do I too. like that a lot. But James's had an extraordinarily easy bolt lift. It did. Right. Which seems to be manufacturer to manufacturer. Mm-hmm. My Christensen... 7 rem mag that I've been carrying for a long time has a little bit more stout bolt lift where you have to get you have to kind of get over this little bit of a sprung tension on the bolt lift right so that milled into the lugs it's a lot harder right for that bolt to just catch on something and come open right. and, and then I lose that round if I'm carrying around the chamber so that's manufacturer to manufacturer Gunworks guns I've handled, and that bolt comes up if you breathe on it wrong. Right. Well, because it, it's probably it's built for very, tolerances and accuracy. Very smooth. Very smooth. Very right. easy to lift. So that's that, that's definitely something to consider, and I'm glad you brought that up. Now, I have a Savage 111, which is a 110 action. Yes. And I have the action. It has a barrel on it that's bent right now, and I'm I'm going to build something on it someday. <laughs> that's right. The old bent barrel. I'm going to build something on it someday. Um, Just bend it, it back. You know, I looked up how to do that. <laughs> and I found some interesting videos about beating it over a log. I'm sure you did. It was like, huh, well, that I, might work. I would love to see that video. Tell you what, if any of you listeners out there have ever bent a rifle barrel accidentally and then gone home and bent it back, let us know. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't think I'll do it, but I might send you my bent barrel. <laughs> it would be a great story to read. Um, but it has a three-position safety. I don't like it as much as I'd like a... Uh, Oh, a Ruger three position. Is that or, right on the tang of the rifle? It's right on. It's right underneath. Like so, if you pull the bolt back, it'll be underneath the bolt. The yep. bolts. Yep. If if the bolt's open, similar to like where the old Rugers was, the old <laughs> tang safety Rugers. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever handled one of those. Or like the Remington, or I'm sorry, not the Remington. The Browning X bolts have that okay. little okay. switch button behind that bolt. Yeah, shroud. it's right behind it, and it's actually a three position. It will lock mm. the bolt down on the second. Yep. Or on the. On the yeah, it's got a three position, and it's kind of, it's nothing like a yeah, you know, it's not a nice roll roll back right right. It's but, not that wing safety, but it still is a three position safety. Yep, you know, and it's got a and that gun has a nice trigger on it. I'm like, hey, I might as well build something on this. Yeah, I don't know. Thinking about a Sherman, <laughs> a Sherman cartridge. Yeah, yeah you, you've got me interested in in some of that. If anybody out there has a Sherman cartridge. Yeah, let us know what, you, what you've and, done. Yeah, yeah I, I'm sure Mariah would just have a great day when he read your email. So you have a lot of considerations there. We've yeah. talked about weight and balance, shootability, cartridge availability. You kind of already skipped ahead to that. But like you said, pick something that you can find ammo for. Yeah. The number one thing that you want to do is make sure that you can practice with it. Don't, right. don't buy 
let's just give an example, a 28 Nosler, where the only ammo you can find is $120 a box Mm -hmm. for 20. And you can't hardly even afford to shoot more than a box every few months because it just hurts that much. If you can afford to do it, then fine. Yeah. I would say. Absolutely. You know, I might hate to say it, but Weatherby ammo is the same way, right? Yes, it is. Um, it's, it's expensive. It, and, you know, I, was, I saw some in the store the other day. I don't remember what it was for. thirty three seventy eight or something. It was like, it may not have been that cartridge. Maybe it was a, a bigger one, but. It was Alaska like, Ammo has thirty three seventy eight and three thirty eight three seventy eight right now. Yeah. And they had some uh, 416 Weatherby too. Oh, did they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that maybe that's what was like $180 a box. Oh, but that's kind of a novelty cartridge altogether. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, like that's a thumper. That's like three times the powder capacity of well, a lot of stuff, <laughs> right? <laughs> but just as a rule of thumb, buy something that you can practice with, and that doesn't even have to be due to ammunition cost. It needs to also be considered with ammunition availability, right? And you need to find something where you've got multiple options for factory ammo if you're not going to be reloading for it, mm-hmm. where your gun might not like the original load that you want to shoot with it. Right. So you might have to go out and experiment and buy some different factory loads to shoot mm-hmm. and see what that gun likes, what, what you can tune it in with. So don't buy a cartridge and think that you've got this great do-it-all gun and then it likes the wrong bullet. Say right. it only shoots match ammo. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not what you're going to want for, for a lot of situations, right. even, even though it can definitely work. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, that's, so that's true. Action design, you know, and, and then that weight and balance, bolt lift, does it lock when it's on safe, mm-hmm. and shootability. Can you handle the recoil? Recoil is a learned behavior, and yeah. it is mental, but after a while, recoil does take effect. And you develop subconsciously, whether you realize it or Mm -hmm. not, that's why it's called subconscious, you can develop any shooter is susceptible to target panic or Mm -hmm. bad form. It goes by many different names. I've been trying to shoot every week, even just a few rounds, working on some loads or something. I try to get to the range on Friday or Saturday, put a few rounds on target, you know, check some check some loads, whatever I'm going to do. But what that allows me to do is it allows me to every week practice. And I've yes. gotten much, much better. I'm sure. At ignoring everything, but the, but the target, yeah. the sights, and the trigger. The shot process. Yes. Yeah. And sure. that's all you need to work, especially when you're sitting on a bench. Yeah. Right. Which allows you to, to, to zero in on that. Yeah. Um, and, and to dial in my own shooting abilities. Right. Right. I had an interesting phenomena happen shooting. Hit me. I've never had anything like this happen before. It's always been the other way, you know, especially as a teen- kid and a teenager. When you, you know, you, so usually you get handed a gun when you're a kid and uh-huh. it's a 22. No recoil, nothing noticeable, right? Okay. And then your dad, because he wants to have a laugh, hands you a 4570. <laughs> right? And you're not very stable and you shoot it and you almost fall over and, um, and he has a good laugh. And <laughs> I don't know, you know, I get it. <laughs> and it, you know, it was funny for me when it happened. Um, <laughs> it's funny once. Right. But at the same time, all of a sudden, I'm introduced to this recoil. Yeah. 
right? And I had shot other guns that I could recoil at that point. It wasn't just from 22 to 45, 70, right? <laughs> That's good. But all of a sudden, you've got all this recoil, you know, and if you don't, you know, or you shoot a scoped rifle, like a .30-06, yeah. Even it's not that heavy of a kick, but right, if you're not right. if you're not holding that rifle right, you're yep. gonna get scope cut. Yep, you're gonna get scope eye, dork stamp. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 at first, you know, as a kid, especially and a young teenager, yeah, learning to handle recoil and not target panic, right? Yeah, was a big deal. And I, I got over, you know, going going from a light. No recoil or little recoil to heavy recoil. And I've shot heavy recoil, and that's about all I've shot for at least 10 years. Yeah. You know, the occasional 22, but I don't know if that really counts. Um, so I took that six arc to the range a few weeks ago and started shooting it. Yeah. You know, when you have a heavy recoil rifle, you take your time with every shot. Especially when it's a hunt, you know. Especially when it, especially when it's a bolt action or a lever action or something, you know. Even that thirty thirty, yeah, that I've been shooting and working on some loads for isn't that heavy of a recoil, but it's got enough that you notice it. Well, there's almost no butt pad on it. Yeah, no, there's nothing. It's a hard, you yeah. know, it's hard plastic. Yeah, there you go. Um, and you know, it's it doesn't hurt that bad, but right. it, there's a little bit of a kick there. Yeah, especially with the loads I'm shooting, you know. <laughs> um, but. What I found, what I had happen to me when I started shooting that six arc, I had shot the thirty thirty, then I got out the six arc and I started shooting it. And I was just shooting some factory ammo, breaking it in, brand new barrel. I'm breaking it in the barrel a little bit and just seeing where it lands, trying to dial in the scope a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I didn't bore sight initially. I was like, where did I hit? Oh yeah, I should bore sight this. I didn't, I completely <laughs> missed my two foot by four foot high target. <laughs> it was off by like three feet and two feet. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, so I, I fixed that. And then I started shooting. And what I found was like, whoa, this thing shoots nice. Yeah. I can pull the trigger. Ooh, boom. And I just started pulling the trigger. Tap, tap, tap. And at 100 yards, I've got like a two, three inch group just pulling the trigger like every couple seconds. I'm blowing my mind, right? Like, I can't do that. And that's with, with a like, high powered rifle, what, like twenty rounds or something like that. I didn't do that for a full twenty rounds. I think that was like ten rounds at a time. Okay, in different spots, but yeah, I've got like a two, three, a couple two, three inch groups. You know, and I was I didn't do them all like that. I was testing velocities and stuff on the factory ammunition and right. stuff. But now that doesn't give me an you know I can't say oh this is a two MOA rifle because no. if I took my time, right? As I as I showed you some pictures of some other shots I did that it's yeah. easily a half MOA. Um. Half MOA with how many shot groups? I had a three shot group at half MOA. Okay. At some point, when you go to to work up your your next data set for mm -hmm. your reloads, shoot a five shot group. I'm going to. Yeah. I'd be really curious I'll, to see how it holds a five shot group. I haven't done a lot of that with that yet because I want to. I yeah. need to change some more stuff. I need to change the scope mounts. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. I I just put the rings that came that were on the scope when I got it. That on could have there been why you were like three feet off. I think off it had something to do with that. That's a yeah. long ways off. I need I need to change the scope mounts. I need to change. I'm thinking about getting a dedicated uh, M lock attached by full time bipod. Oh, okay. I was running my javelin, which is which I have my bipod adapter all the way at the front of the receiver, which is not a good place for bench right. rest shooting. Right. 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 There's a lot more movement, so. It was really easy to miff my whiff my shots. Yeah, and and I did that a few times. So I didn't. Okay. I was like, well, I did just shoot a three shot group that is a half inch, 
yeah. or less. I didn't measure them, but there was easily a half inch or less you saw. Yeah. Well, I, and then I there was the another two shot group. Right. But that two shot group also had one I miffed that was like two inches off. Oh, okay. Because I just wasn't, it, it just wasn't as stable as I needed to be to test yeah. loads. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyhow, what I, I said all that to say this. It was really easy to get out of form uh, when it was easy to shoot. Yeah. Because you're not just taking your time and making you're everything. Because when you're yeah. taking your time, every shot, like, well, and, and at the end of that day, when I shot, I shot like 40 something rounds that okay. day. And I didn't even, wasn't even trying to get really good groups that day. I was just seeing what stuff did and shot some factory, shot a few hand loads and um, experimenting with some predator loads. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, I was like, I need, I, I had to like really think about it more than I had to at the beginning. Right. About focusing in. Like I had the opposite. Interesting. Like usually Interesting. when you yeah. start shooting easy. Yeah. Easy. You know, it's easy to dial in because there's no recoil that to, to think about. Right. But now when that's not a problem. Yep. It's a whole nother, whole nother thought process and learning yeah. curve. Anyhow, I took a yeah. long time to say that. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to, to go back to the basics and just, right. and just make sure that your form is, is going right. A good thing to do is just dry fire practice. Right. We've talked about that before um, many different times, but dry fire practice is a good way to practice just your form and just smooth trigger pull, uh, even tension on your grip, mm -hmm. which should be minimal. You know, you definitely don't want to be torquing your grip one way or the right. other. Um, but yeah, good form is paramount to consistent shooting. And kind of shooting those three-shot groups is is probably the most traditional mm -hmm. uh, way to kind of zero in a gun. I've shot more five-shot groups in the last year or so just, right. just because I'm, well, there was somebody that kind of prompted that that shift. Um, and the, the way that I understand it, and it does, it does give you better odds, mm -hmm. uh, mathematically to kind of come up with your exact center of zero shooting a five shot group increases that data set, right? right? It's not just a three shot. It's a total five shot group. And then, so you shoot five shots, let the barrel cool down, shoot five shots, let the barrel cool down. And I mean, like back to ambient air temperature, cool mm -hmm. down not 10 minutes and it's still just barely warm. So, all right, right well, it's, it, it's cooled off enough, like a complete cold bore mm -hmm. five shot group. And also, um, uh, denote which is your cold bore shot every time. Oh, there you to, go. To absolutely make sure that your cold bore shot isn't a half inch high left of where the next four go. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're kind of developing all this data set for this gun with that load, right? And, and you're just trying to find, all right, so over a five-shot group, five different times, which is 25 rounds of expensive mm -hmm. ammo, mind you, but you'll see, all right, in, those, in these five-shot groups, my average center, my average measured center is about three-quarters of an inch left of absolute dead center of where I want to be zeroed. Right. So now I know that I can come over three clicks, three quarters of an inch mm -hmm. at a hundred yards to really shift my true zero point. And then it also helps you to check and see if your zero floats. Some guns have been known to float their zero and that could be due to your optics. That could be due to your optics mounting system. It could just be your gun right. or your ammunition, you know, variabilities in that. So you're always just trying to build data sets for your platform and just 
try to have a, a really a written history, you know, have like a mm-hmm. notebook and just catalog all of that stuff. Right. And that's not even to mention tracking your speeds out nope. of a chronograph of some sort. If you, you remember those two pictures I showed you? Yes. One was a three shot group. One was a two shot group. Yep. If you put those two pick two, two shot groups over each other with the target dot from the target in the center, that would be a half MOA group, five shots. Yeah. But that was in between, that there was a cooldown period in between. No, not really. I mean, if you said you just a few shifted, minutes, maybe. You just shifted. I just switched. Point of impact, I, I, yeah. I did different, uh, a different dot because I was ch- switched bullets. Oh, that's right. Those, those are those hammer bullets that I was testing for, see mm. if they got the same point of impact. And uh, within a quarter inch at 100 yards is. It's good enough for government work. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. It's enough I can dial to correct, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um uh, that's we should probably take yeah and yep. then dive back in all right folks we all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope last year i found the solution to that problem with the stealthy hunter rifle cover it wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. And we're back. We are. So, kind of to wrap up the whole gun category, mm-hmm. and this is this is rambled on as as per normal yeah. about guns, and people seem to enjoy listening to we've, us talk about guns. We've got a lot of comments on how much they like these yeah. nerd outs. So, hey, I, I'm glad that you are willing to hear what our wives are not. <laughs> <laughs> so, to wrap up guns. Yeah. We talked about actions. We talked about shootability and all those other things. Affordability. At the end of the day, the other conclusion that you need to... to well, in conclusion, the other, the other factor you need, you need to consider is weatherproofing. Oh. There are a lot of firearms that were used 40, 50 years ago in Alaska mm-hmm. that require more maintenance than the modern rifleman is used to doing on a firearm. Yeah, that's very true. Just because blued guns with wooden stocks were used even up to about 20 or 30 years ago does not mean that you can hunt with the same style of gun and care for it just like you care for a stainless synthetic gun. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Wood guns with blued steel require some in-the-field care that you're not going to be used to yeah. if you're used to hunting with a more weatherproofed gun. So keep that in consideration. Wood stocks can swell. If you do buy a rifle to hunt in Alaska that has a wood stock and a blued barrel, Keep that steel oiled, not necessarily the inside of the action. Keep the oil right. out of there till you're home and done hunting because you don't want to grease up and gum up your firing pin assembly. But when you get home, strip it all apart and clean it and oil it 
um, for the time that it's stored. That way it doesn't corrode. So what I like to do before a hunt like that yeah. and, and after, but is I'll take, if I have a full, if I have a blued gun, yeah, wood or not wood stock, um, I'll take the stock, yeah, make sure all the parts under there are cleaned and well-oiled. Yeah. Not, you know, so much you can wipe your finger and, you know, but, yeah. but I'll, I will make sure there is a coat of oil on everything underneath that stock. Yes. Because that stock is not planned on coming off in the field. No. And that is the number one place where you'll have rust and pitting. Yeah. Is where the stock, where moisture will get in there. And the get firing between. pin assembly gets it a lot too. Right. So know how to field strip yeah, your true. bolt that's if true. you have an issue so that you can inspect and clean it while in mm-hmm. the field. But also know how to strip down your bolt. And right. at some point we'll do a whole nother topic about that, about field care and yeah. the nitty gritty of what it takes to know backcountry gunsmithing, essentially. Oh, there you go. And how to strip apart your rifle to a good enough extent to, you know, just kind of investigate and figure out what a problem might be. But that firing pin assembly is where you don't want to have oil on it in the field. But outside of that, bring some rem oil wipes to the field with you. Mm. And on a blued gun, just wipe down that barrel and just keep all the exposed steel well oiled, you know, whether you have to do it every day or every other day different levels and qualities of steel are going to corrode at a faster rate than others. So keep that in mind. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't use a, a, um, a wooden stocked blued gun for Alaska hunting, not by a long shot. The other thing I would say is if you do have a wood stocked gun, even if it is laminated wood, it still can soak up water and therefore warp, which could affect the free floating of your stock and in regards to your barrel. Mm-hmm. And if that free-floated stock made of wood swells and warps due to moisture absorption, then that stock can then come in contact with your barrel, right. which will change the harmonics, which will then potentially change your point of impact. Mm-hmm. And that'll be inconsistent pressure depending on how wet or how dry it is on any given day in the field. So things to keep in mind with that would be strip that gun apart after you buy it and ensure that the inside of that wood stock, like under the barrel mm-hmm. and then in the magazine area right. and all of the inner parts of that wood stock on the inside of the gun that you can't see when the gun is assembled are also sealed as the outside of the they gun They usually is. aren't. They usually are not. Even just running your gun oil on that would keep water from... Yeah. I bought an old Winchester uh, Model 70 mm-hmm. to restore and sell. Yeah, years ago, biggest mistake of my life. I bought, I bought a sweet rifle, and it was a pre sixty four, and uh, it, it it had an aftermarket stock. The guy had had purchased a nice stock for it, and then it became his boat gun. Oh, and the bluing was not great, um, but it, it it was it was in good enough shape that I didn't want to get it reblued or cerakote or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I just cleaned it up and got the corrosion off of it very carefully. But the inside of that wooden stock was not sealed. And so I went to a local woodworking shop and told them what I had. I actually brought in the stock and I said, hey, I just want to seal this thing from the moisture. And they ended up telling me, all right, just sand the whole thing down because the, this coat is cracked here and there's a little spot mm-hmm. there that's, that, that's not sealed anymore. So he said, take this grit sandpaper. And I, I bought sandpaper and I bought uh, sealant for that stock. And I ended up sanding the whole thing back down and then resealing it. 
What did they tell you to use, like a urethane? I don't remember. It's been, man, that, that has to have been like seven or eight years ago okay. now. It was a long time ago. I, I, I might still have it in the garage somewhere, um, but that's been a long time ago. But it turned out, I mean, it looked like a million bucks when it was done. Mm-hmm. And then I sold it for way more than I bought it for. And I just regretted it immediately. And I have ever since because it was a beautiful gun. Let's check this out. What caliber was it? 300 win mag. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I would regret it that one. No. No, it was 30 out six. Was it? Yep. Sorry, I got that wrong. It was 30 out six. Either way. <laughs> yeah, either way. But speaking of. It was a huge bummer. 300 wood mag and 30 out six. All right. Good job. They like, you like that segue right there? Yeah. Well, don't is ruin it. Good, it. Is it going to say it's a good segue when you don't start talking? Don't ruin it. Yeah, don't ruin it by talking about it. All right. It's well, like explaining your joke. Um, so I brought up 300 PRC way ahead of time. Yeah. And that's what I would say if I was going to pick a one dual rifle yeah. for Alaska. And the reason I brought up 300 PRC yeah. was because, you know, as, you, as you've hinted at, I am very intrigued with Wildcat cartridges and um, being able to, you know, all these things you can do when you build your own custom gun and all these things, or, you know, or, or yeah. you're reloading and, and, and such. Well, for the 300 PRC, it's like, like we already talked about, ammunition and availability. It's going to be available. You're going to have a variety of options available for it. Yeah. But the reason I like it is basically for the things that you said about it. Yeah. Which are, it's a modern cartridge. Yes. And it's a lot more efficient. Right. Than a 300 Win Mag. Yep. Right? Yeah. And it's going to push it faster than 300 Win Mag too, right? And yep. probably... I haven't looked at the low data, but probably at about the same amount of powder. Uh, so the, the parent case for the 300 PRC is a 375 Ruger. The, okay. The 300 PRC existed as a Wildcat cartridge before Hornady made it a factory-loaded cartridge. Mm-hmm. There were guys uh, Wildcatting that, and there were guys Wildcatting the 7 PRC as well. Right. Uh, derived from the 375 Ruger case. Now, I don't know about the neck length and, 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 and the shoulder design and how the Wildcatters manage that. Um, but Gunworks also had the 7, 7 LRM, I believe, is a twin of the 7 PRC that Hornady was making 7 LRM brass oh, really? for Gunworks okay. for years as their proprietary 7 LRM Gunworks cartridge. Mm-hmm. The 7 PRC is, is, is the twin to that. Um, I, I believe, and, and I'd, I'd have to look this up to verify it, but I believe that 7 LRM brass is compatible with 7 PRC as well but don't go off of that without verifying <laughs> that yet that, that was something that i heard I, I somewhere when the 7prc was launched right. so it, it yeah it's been a while so i'd have to look that up so initially i was thinking i would say something like 30-06 yeah because well for one big reason is yesterday and today i've been listening to this book working by myself a lot and so i've gotten through like 12 hours of a 14-hour book in two days it's called white hunters <laughs> and it's about African hunters, right? African, okay. the, you know, the great white hunters, right, of Africa. Yeah. Who were, who, who were the guides, the P, you know, we call them PHs now, yeah, right? professional hunters. Yeah. Professional hunters. But, you know, there was a time when there weren't any more than like 30 yeah. in all of Africa at yeah. a given time. And, um, is this know, a true story book? Yeah, this or? is all, this is about the white hunters. Really? In Africa from, you know, late 1800s through, I think the, through the, last part of the 20th century. Really? 
Oh man, I'm gonna have to listen to that. Yeah, yeah, you sold it's good. me. Oh, it's good. I, I love all those old Africa hunting now, books. One thing that surprised me is, and it's and it's about you know as many of them. I think the author was was a hunter was a hunter at one point. Who's the author? Brian Hearn. Okay. He was an author. He he was a hunter, African hunter at one point. I don't know if he was considered a white hunter. Okay. You know, like a PH, or if he got to that point or not. But he um he interviewed most of the hunters that he talks about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you don't, you know, and I think not necessarily some of the early ones, but most of the later ones that he mentions and brings up are the ones that lived to get old enough. But, um, so most of the stories he tells are either he's relating what he's been told. So the way a lot of, so many of them died from snakes and leopards and lions. Oh, and, interesting. And elephant. And it's like. Malaria. He hasn't <laughs> said anybody that's died Mosquitoes. from malaria, yeah. but. There was definitely some guys that almost died from. Yeah, or, sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's another another story. But one thing that really surprised me was how many of them carried, not necessarily as a primary, although a lot of them did at times. The seven millimeter Mauser. Seven Mauser and a thirty out six. What about the three hundred three British? I heard that mentioned briefly. Okay. But not a lot. That wasn't as thirty out six, huh? There was a lot of guys with a thirty out six. A lot of times it was just a lighter rifle that they had, and it was a lot, you know, more, a lot easier to shoot longer range. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they've got a wounded animal, they need to put another bullet in at a further range. What were they shooting with it? Primarily planes game stuff? Everything. Uh, like for bait for leopards and lions? Like like to they, shoot I mean, Impala or what? Almost all the stories in this book are about the dangerous game. Really? So they were shooting... Buffalo. Lions. I mean, primarily, I, I hear it like lions and leopards. Yeah, yeah. But, um... I can't say I've heard one mentioned in regards to elephant. Yeah. Um, but no, there was a lot of guys. I mean, there's also one story where, just because we're talking about it at the moment, and this is book reviews with Mo, <laughs> where he's, he's, you know, and all the names and everything. I don't know how much of that I'm going to keep track of. It'll, it's all logged away for some future trivia or something <laughs> like that, right? But one guy was taking a, um, another younger hunter on, you know, on a, on a uh, buffalo hunt. Okay. And, the guide carried a 416 Rigby. I believe it was a 416 Rigby. There was an earlier 416 uh, uh, that they were talking about in there too. But okay. he carried a 416 Rigby, I believe. Or maybe it was a, you know, 477 or something like that. Okay. But, um, and the younger guy had a 375 H&H. Okay. And he said, he was encouraging him to get a bigger rifle. And he said, no, this was plenty big enough. Hmm. And, um, well, suffice it to say, after that hunt, he bought a uh, bigger rifle. Oh. Because it didn't go well. Interesting. It's either a buffalo hunt or a lion hunt. And they almost, both of them almost got. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Isn't the, the number of these guys that had close calls, like yeah. one guy. Well, I'm sure he zeroed in on some charged of the by fantastic buffalo, stories. But instead of um, getting hooked, he was able to like spin around and grab the neck of the Cape Buffalo and hang on until Cape Buffalo went down. Yeah. Wow. There's some great stories in that book. You think any of it's tall tales or you think it's all fact? It, it is put together very factually. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm going to have to but, read that book. You know what's crazy is the number of these guys that survived snake bites and leopard, you know, takes we, them a week, it takes them a month to heal from yeah. an attack like We've this. got it pretty good in Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Dalton so, and his brown bears. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But so, the number of guys that would survive, you know, 
30 years of this. Yeah, yeah. And retire and yep. die in a car accident. Oh, man. You just to come home and get killed in the concrete jungle. Right. So the 30 out 6. The 30 out 6. Is probably the bread and butter cartridge. It's definitely the old of, school. Of the, yeah, the, the, the historical. Uh, even you go back and, and read books like The Last of the Great Brown Bear Men with Penel and Tallifson. Those guys were pioneer hunting outfitting guides mm-hmm. in Kodiak Island back in the day. Uh, it's actually my my screensaver on my laptop. It is an old newspaper ad for Pinnell and Tallifson. They've got a big brown bear hide stretched out. Well, they got three of them stretched out on a cabin side. I believe that was at the old cannery that they had, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, anyway, if you read old books like that from the old uh, brown bear hunting days and, and the guiding era in Alaska, those guys carried 30 out sixes for their, for their guide guns. I specifically remember a quote that, that I hope I remember till the day I die. It was in an Outdoor Life article that was posted a number of years ago. I can't remember who wrote it. I think there were several contributing authors to it. But right at the head of the article, there was a little quote underneath the photo of a bear or something like that that said, anyone who says a .30-06 is insufficient to kill a brown bear has either never shot one or is unwittingly commenting on their marksmanship. It was something to that effect. I, I I probably got that a little bit wrong, but it was it was the, that was a gist of it. And he, I remember he specifically says unwittingly commenting on their marksmanship, right? So his point was in saying that uh, was you shoot the right kind of bullet in the right spot at right. the right range, the bear's going to die. And there's plenty of stories about guys killing big brown bears, guys and gals shooting mm-hmm. big brown bears with seven oh eights with 140 grain nozzler partitions. Or a 308 with a 165 nozzle partition, right? Those old uh, bullet designs, they're controlled expansion, they're 60% weight retention, and they will get into the vitals if you get a good broadside shot. Right. You're not going to have the energy that like a 375 or a 416 will to stop one on a charge necessarily mm-hmm. with as much authority, although it could work. Yeah, I've read several accounts um, of guys stopping quite aggressive brown bear charges while they were deer hunting with seven rem mags. One of them, I recall, took six rounds to kill the bear, and all six rounds were fired uh, while the bear was at 30 yards in closing, and the bear died clawing towards them at, at, at less than 10 yards. Uh, so it can certainly be done with less than a 375. So mm-hmm. don't, just like with the control feed versus push feed debate, don't get hung up on having to shoot too much gun to shoot comfortably and to get good with. If you are going out and buying a rifle, the most important thing is not that you shoot a big cartridge. The most important thing is that you shoot adequate in the cartridge department. Right. But more important is your abilities with that cartridge and with that rifle altogether. You need to be able to run that gun in your sleep with your hand behind your back, Mm -hmm. right? You need to be able to work that gun flawlessly in a fast situation because oftentimes you're going to get one chance and it's going to happen fast. And if you're not intimately familiar with that gun and you drop the magazine on like a a detachable magazine rifle mm-hmm. or you accidentally bump the hinged floor plate release and you dump your extra shells on the ground. I've I've heard two stories from guide camp this year where really? other guides had that exact scenario happen. Two different guys dropped their belly full of shells on the ground while they were trying to shoot an animal. So 
at that point, you're shooting a single shot gun. Mm -hmm. And in, in one of the cases, uh, the, the, the hunter on that particular event missed his opportunity at that shot and they had to go follow up and he eventually got a shot, but he, he stopped and opened his gun up, closed the, closed the belly of the gun and then reloaded those cartridges back into the magazine. And then they pursued the bear and ended up shooting it. But the point being, you might not always get a follow-up opportunity. So intimacy with your rifle and you need to, that thing needs to be your, your favorite girlfriend, if you will. Now, I, I, I know a guide that I work with pretty regularly and he has a guide rifle that is nothing pretty to look at. And it's old, it's beat up, the bluing is worn off of it. It's, I asked him <laughs> the first time I ever saw his gun, I said, oh, it's a stainless model, huh? And he, no. <laughs> the bluing wow. is just worn off. It, it looks like a dirty stainless gun. But he knows that gun inside out, upside down, backwards. And he shot a lot more animals than most guides have. Right. And... But but he refuses to change guns. He carries the same heavy 12-pound gun. Sheep hunting, bear hunting, moose hunting, deer hunting, mountain goat hunting, doesn't matter. He's always got the same gun. And there's the old saying, fear the man that only owns one gun. Now, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with owning all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can do that, then that's great. And nothing wrong with that at all. But whatever gun you're going to take to the field, and in this particular case situation, if you're looking for a gun to hunt Alaska, really anywhere, but especially Alaska for our topics, make sure that the number one thing is overall usability and shootability of it. Right. Um, make sure that you're buying something that's quality. You know, don't shop for a $250 special that comes with a scope. Those are out there and they can work, but know that you get what you pay for. No, I actually saw, I don't remember what it was. I did see a rifle that came with a scope the other day and it was a decent, actually a decent setup for a decent price. I think probably one of the best entry-level guns for under 500 bucks is probably the Winchester XPR. Okay. I've heard a lot of good things about that gun. They seem to shoot good. I haven't heard anything about them not being reliable. Uh, yeah, it's it seems to be a pretty good option, okay. and it's I about $350 or $400. I shot that Remington 770. Yep. And I even shot it with that Bushnell scope that came on it. Familiarity and... You knew that gun, mm -hmm. and it just so got it. It works exactly. So, the final thing that we're going to talk about, uh, kind of together, is optics and ammunition. So, we'll talk about optics just briefly here. There is a ton that we could talk about. We tend to gravitate towards loopholes mm -hmm. here. They're brutally tough. They are abused, even in the factory, in their stress testing. And I've never had one fail. So that goes in that reliability category. Right. There are a lot of good brands of optics out there. But Loophold has been the one that we've probably used the most here. I agree. And I see probably more Loopholds than anything else, uh, e even throughout the guide camps. Really? They're just well-trusted, well-respected brands. Mm -hmm. They have a lifetime warranty guarantee. There is a particular story of one where a guy lost his Loophold scope on quick detach mounts. Mm-hmm. And he was hunting the same area the following year and found his scope on the beach where it had been sand washed. And he sent it back to Loophold and they have it in their little display case there at their, at their shop. And they sent him a new one. But it still worked. It still tracked. And it, it hadn't gotten any water inside the seals. So they're brutally tough. Yeah. Before we get into the scopes themselves, yeah. is there a quick detach option that you would recommend for people? 
Tally used to have one that a lot of guys had. I don't have anything on QD rings. Okay. I, I, any of my guiding guns that have low power scopes, like a one and a half to five is, is what I use a lot on like a 375 H and H or Ruger. Uh, I shoot those things both eyes open and I don't find that I'm any faster with iron sights. If anything, I'm a little bit faster with the scope because the crosshairs right. are faster to find than lining up irons. So for me, I've, I've never put QD it, rings on my guns. It's more of a curiosity thing. I should do some research on it. Mostly I'm curious because it would be more be a, um, where you have a, say, a, a, a guide style, short shorter barrel, yep. you know, quick reaction, yep. dangerous game rifle. That's also, you know, they are capable of a lot longer shots. Yeah. So if you want a little bit of a higher powered scope on there. You could put like a 2 to 12. 2 to 12, or even if you wanted to throw a 3 to 18 on QDs that you would keep off the rifle until you're ready to use it. Interesting. Right? Yeah. I don't know how viable that would be, what your, uh, you know, your accuracy and reliability over distance would right. be with those. Right. I, I know there was a company up here. I, I don't know if they're still making them, but there was a company here in Alaska that mm-hmm. made that made QD uh, mounts. And I'm also thinking of something similar to that for that AR I've got. Yeah. Doing yeah. It's swapping optics on that would be really nice. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So Leupold has a bunch of different options. Uh, just to quickly sum up their, their dedicated hunting line of scopes, mm-hmm. they've got the VX Freedoms. They have the VX 3HDs the VX5HD, and the VX6HD. They also have their Mark V lineup of scopes as well uh, that are a little bit heavier, more lenses, uh, a little bit more of that uh, PRS style of reticle. You have a lot more subtensions built into there, and then they also have first focal plane options. Mm -hmm. And they also uh, have those available in mills and MOA. So for different shooters, for different applications, but for the hunting scopes, the VX Freedoms, the VX 3s, 5s, and 6s are the bread and butter of the hunting industry. Right. You know, that, that classic gold ring loophole scope lineup. So you've got a VX 3 HD in a 3.5 to 10 by 40 or 42. Uh, tell me about that. You've had that, on that, you've had that on that 300 short mag of yours for a number of years. How many times have you dropped that gun and how many times have you had to re-zero it afterwards? Well, I've dropped that gun. Too many times to count. I watched you flip a four-wheeler over. That was a different scope. On your gun boot. That was a different scope. That was still made by Leupold. It was a Redfield. Yep. Made by Leupold. Made right. in the Leupold factory. Correct. That's right. I forgot that was a different and scope. And I did not have to re-zero after that. Yep. Um, and those were in tally uh, lightweight rings. That's what I have on it now. I think at the time it was Warren's or something. I'm pretty sure did I, I put gave tallies you tallies on when... Did it come with tallies? Yeah. I thought I bought them for it. I'm pretty sure that gun yeah, came maybe with it did. tallies. Yeah. Maybe it did. Yeah. Well, at any you. rate, yeah, you have had multiple instances where I that have. gun has either bumped up against a rock or something where normally like you'd say, be concerned about it. Flipped a wheeler with it in a gun boot. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, you know how, how it happens. And yeah. It happens set, to everybody. You, you set your rifle down for against a tree or something. And it feels solid until you turn around and you hear thunk and you go, Uh-oh. what? Oh, no. And, it, and yeah, falls yeah. down on a rock or right. a root or something. Speaking of which, you know, that Stealthy Hunter scope and crown cover does a great job of covering that up and protecting it. it. A little bit of padding. That's even our little Stealthy commercial. Protects your action. Yep. Use code the Northern Hunter at checkout and get yourself a discount on that. Boom. And uh, anyhow, I have had zero issues with it. Yeah. I have not. Well, aside from, you know, I don't think I even re-zeroed it with the Hunter, with the Hammer Hunters that I'm shooting. Oh, really? No, I don't believe it. No, I did. I had to 
change the left right a little bit, I think. That's right. I just changed to move it over like a yeah. half inch or something. Yeah. But but as far as scope durability and reliability and tracking. I have not had to adjust it unless I changed my cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So the waterproofing is very, very important. Yeah. And you can't have a scope that isn't perfectly sealed mm-hmm. that will keep that, that will not keep the moisture out. Um, Alaska is a very wet environment. Uh, a lot of people think of Alaska as a cold, frozen place. We get a lot of rain during hunting season, folks. And I've had other uh, brands of optics uh, a number of years ago that I, I was trying out. And it, it's a big name brand. I'm not trying to take a shot at them necessarily. But uh, I had a, a fairly expensive scope on a rifle while I was deer hunting. And it cost me two different deer on that hunt mm. where I went to pull up the scope and uh, the, the inside of that scope had actually fogged up and gotten moisture inside of it and it beat it up right on the center of the crosshairs. And so it made that scope basically unusable. And so I, I, I tried everything, you know, at, at night I would put it next to a heat source trying to just get it to dry out and uh, it would not. If anything, that made it worse. Uh, so that that... I had shot Leupold before that, mm-hmm. and then I tried that scope, and I went back to Leupold, and I haven't looked back since. I remember that. Uh, that was a big disappointment, and that company's response was lackluster at best as to the reasons that they gave to why that scope failed. Mm-hmm. Unacceptable, right? Um, so the, the Leupold's have never let me down. They've always tracked well. I've shot them out to uh, extended distances on game and steel. Um, and I, I've never had a tracking issue with right. one. And, and I've had VX3s, VX5s, and uh, VX6s, and they all track well. Um, some of the older original CDS uh, non-zero lock turrets, I've heard had some issues at, at, at uh, earlier years. Um, I've been told that that was a particular problem with, uh, with a spring in the turret oh, that I has see. now been uh, completely eliminated. Uh, okay. from, from what I've been told, but not every old CDS scope had that. It was something that, that popped up here and there mm-hmm. individually, but it was not ever a big enough problem that they quit making it or that they had to change anything at the time. But they, when they went to the VX3 HDs, that problem has gone away. And I've had VX3 HDs, like I said, and they track just fine. So the VX3s are in that $500 price range. The VX5s are closer to the uh, to the $1,000 price range, some lower, some higher. Mm-hmm. And the VX6s generally start in that $1,600 or $1,800 range and then go up to, I think, $2,500 for some of the real high magnification models, depending on what turrets you get and, and things like that and, and different reticle options. So our recommendation is always going to be on this show to go loophole. Um, the other options that I would say are good if you don't want to shoot a loophole. Um, I do have a, a Leica scope on my 7 Rem Mag right now that I, I really do like that scope. It's the Amplus 6i. It's a 3 to 18 okay. by 44. It's got an MOA subtension second focal plane reticle with an, with an illuminated center dot in the reticle. It is a nice scope. That's the only scope that I shoot right now that's not a loophole. And I only got it because there was a promo going on for that scope. And I picked one up because I'd never shot a Leica scope. I hadn't Mm -hmm. even heard of them until a couple of years ago. And I have been happy with it. So that's really the only other experience that I can speak to right now 
uh, outside of loophole for what I currently have. Right. So scopes are important. Uh, it, you can have a two, three, four thousand dollar rifle, mm-hmm. and if you put a piece of junk uh, mid level scope on there that doesn't right. track or doesn't have right. good low light clarity or doesn't have good parallax adjustment for shooting past three or four hundred yards, then you're limiting that nice rifle to whatever range that scope is, mm-hmm. is good out to. And you probably can't rely on the dial at that point either. So take that in consideration. Um, if you have a super high-end hunting rifle, don't spend anything less than a thousand bucks on a scope. Yeah. If right. that gun costs you two grand or more, you need to have at least a VX5 on there. That's right. just my opinion for magnification and for extended range capability with that longer uh, ZL2 full two-revolution MOA dial turret. And you also get a loophole fire dot in all the VX6s, which is really nice. And it's some of the VX5s, right? Some of the VX5s, yes. It is an option. Have you ever used the, uh, the Patrol 6? I have not. I've looked at it. Yeah, I'm looking at it. And is that a 1 to 6 or a 1 to 4? It's a 1 to 6 by 24 with a fire dot duplex. Okay. Um, 30 mil tube. Oh. It's pretty sweet. It's $1,400. Okay. But, you know, so, you know, it's got an automatic. Um, and it's a 1 to 6, you said, so it's a true 1 power at the bottom. Yep. Yeah, I mean, for, for what it is, I mean, it's not cheap, but it's got their fire dot duplex. You can also do it in a, uh, you can get it with a CD, CDZ. Or CDS, CDS, yeah. Dial, if you want, or without. Mm. That one's $1,600, I think. Yeah. So it's up there in that VX6 range. It, it seems to be, but it's a one to six, right? Yeah. I think it's designed yeah. for, I think this is a military. LPVO style. Um, yeah. Does, you know, they show it on an AR, but. Right. Uh, one of the things that intrigues me, and you may have heard of this. I haven't heard of this before, but the, it has a um, uh, electric reticle level. Electronic yes, reticle level. the VX6s have that too. It has that in it, so the reticle will flash when the scope isn't level. Yes, not in every case situation. I think it can sense if the rifle is steadied on like a prone position, it'll blink when the rifle is sitting perfectly still and it's out of level and the dot is on. But if you're freehanding right. and you just tilt it one oh, way or the right. other, I, it doesn't make, blink. Uh, yeah, that, that would make a lot so of sense. So it's probably yeah. built into it that it doesn't do it all the oh, time. Yeah, what does it say? Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it looks pretty sweet. And I mean, for, yeah. it's, like I say, it's a true one power. Yeah. For, for a, That'd be a great gun uh, uh, pairing for like a 375 mm-hmm. or even like a, four, uh, a 4570 right. for a good little brush gun set up there. Uh, that's just as fast as irons and on one power, it acts like a red dot. That's right, and you can go up to six power. Yeah, yeah. Which, and they do have a little fancier reticle if that's your thing. You can shoot a long ways on six power. Yeah. Yeah. So, next thing, factory ammo or reloading. So we're going to re- we're going to uh jump into another listener email here. This is from Ivan. He says, "I'm thinking about getting into reloading for fun and also as a cheaper way to get premium ammunition." In parentheses, hashtag #hammer bullets. Of course. <laughs> what equipment do I need to make quality ammunition and what is just extra equipment? A podcast on reloading would be great. Also, I love when you all nerd out on all things shooting, both firearms and bows. Well, thanks for writing in, Ivan. You came to the right place. We will do a lot more in-depth information on reloading in the future. Yeah. But for right now, 
to end this topic on this show, factory or am uh, factory or reloaded ammo. So I'll talk about factory okay. just briefly, and then I'll let you carry it away and we'll wrap up with some reloading information right. because you have been diving headfirst into a I shallow pool. <laughs> <laughs> it's not shallow. It's deep. It goes deep. Deep and expensive, I'm oh, sure. Yeah. So factory ammo has come a long ways. Mm-hmm. It's n- by no means all going to be as good as reloading. Right. But there are a lot of premium factory ammunition makers out there that are very, very consistent with their velocities and their results. Probably all of, if not most of, the premium hunting ammunition that you can buy on the shelf for a hunting rifle Mm -hmm. is going to be suitable for hunting needs in that 500 yards or less. Where you see a big difference is if you chronograph some of that factory ammo, and some brands vary more than mm-hmm. others, um, where you're going to see the big difference at those extended ranges is if you have a, um, a variable of your speed of over 15 to 20 feet per second yeah. between, your, between your high and your low velocity on your gun, mm-hmm. right? So... If your average velocity on a 30 out six or the 180 is 27, 25, but your high, sometimes you get 27, 80, but sometimes you get 26, 90. That's too big of a spread, right? Right. That's a huge spread. Now, for a 30 out six, under 300 yards, you're probably not even going to notice. Most of the time, you're not going to shoot. And if you don't chronograph your factory ammo and you never know, and you shoot a one or a one and a half or even a two-inch group at 100 yards, mm-hmm. and you're never going to shoot anything past 300 yards hunting, Yeah, then you're never even going to know the difference. But most factory ammo is a tighter velocity spread than that. I haven't seen... Now I've only tested two or three different specific um, cartridges and loads factory ammo on a... On a on a um, chronograph. Chronograph. Yeah, I don't know what it is with that word. It's hard for me to remember. <laughs> but Radar. I have seen even on Hornady, on Hornady and Federal, um, both premium loads. I've seen as much as fifty to sixty feet per second difference. Okay. In a box. Interesting. Wow. So I shot when I was breaking in that three thirty eight Weatherby mm-hmm. RPM. I shot Weatherby ammunition off the shelf. It was yep. a 225 grain Nosler Acubond load just before I started shooting hand loads. I just wanted to get it on paper and then go through 20 rounds of a break-in period for that barrel mm-hmm. before I switched over to my hand loads. And with those 225 Acubonds, I think my maximum uh, standard deviation, high right. and low velocity, was never more than like 20 or 22 feet per second. Now that's Weatherby ammunition too. Right. But compared to what these ultra high standard reloaders go oh, for, sure. a lot of these guys are shooting for single digit standard deviation of oh. nine feet a second mm-hmm. or less. And that's ultra high standards. You right. know, they're, they're, they're not messing around. Um, so that there, there are a lot of arguments to be made for reloading in that respect. Mm-hmm. But for practical hunting distances which for me is 500 yards or less, as long as my gun is shooting an inch or better 
over an average five shot group at 100 yards Mm -hmm. for my zero, I'm okay with shooting that out to 500 yards on game if I've got enough time behind that gun. And my recommendations and and personal preferences have varied through the years. I've shot Nosler factory ammo. I've shot Hornady factory ammo. I've shot Mm -hmm. Barnes. I've shot Federal uh, premium ammunition, whether it's the terminal ascent or the different bullets that they load. You know, Federal loads a variety of different things on, on contracts from year to year. So you can get like Hornady ELDX or Barnes TSX or Swift Sirocco's or things like that right. that are loaded by Federal Premium. And that seems to be very consistent stuff too. But you're not going to get the level of... Um, consistency. Consistency, thank you, that you'll get out of reloading yeah. if you're good at it and if you have the right equipment. So depending on your purpose mm-hmm. and what you want to ha- get out of that gun, that's what's going to determine um, whether or not you shoot factory versus hand loads. And if you find a factory load that has the right bullet that you want to shoot, mm-hmm. that shoots a nice tight one-inch group or so at 100 yards for a hunting rifle, and you don't really think that you want to get into spending the time and the money to, to reload, especially in today's market of components availability, right. primers and the right powder and, and, and brass availability and things like that, then you might not even need to consider reloading if you have the right factory load. Mm-hmm. So it's just my perspective on it. So the floor is yours. Reloading, All dive right. in. Well, so, you know, the pros and cons of reloading, it, like you say, a lot of it has to do with just ammunition consistency. You know, the other big thing is ammunition availability. If you can't get, say, 300 Winchester short mag, um, then the best viable option is to reload. It's the only option at some point. Yeah. You know, or find somebody that's got a bunch of ammo that they're selling. But <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, right. But, you know, I, I bought that six arc and I bought it knowing the ammunition was available but scarce. And there's a lot of cartridges that are like that. You walk into your local sporting goods store in, in a given week. And there might be a couple boxes on the shelf. I think you'll probably see that start showing up more. This well, I I have I I I walk into the store and once in a while I'll see it on the shelf, and you know, and I'll buy a couple boxes, and the next day the other five that were there are gone. I did find a store that had a bunch of it for a lot more money. Yeah, but they have a lot of it, so you know, I bought some. Desperate times, desperate, desperate measures. You know, I, I want to have a stock of it. That's another thing for me. Reloading, I reload for hunting, not for precision. Hmm. There's a big difference. You know, you talked about standard deviation, which is the difference in velocity per cartridge, per, per round that yeah, you shoot round, in a yeah. load. Um, and, you know, if you talk to even the avid reloaders, the guys who reload for precision shooting, the guy, PRS guys and such, yeah. most of them, when they load hunting ammunition, do not even look at their standard deviation. Interesting. Because it really doesn't matter when you're not shooting competition. And you're never for and for a hunting round. If you're not going to shoot over, like you say, five even six hundred yards, yeah, uh, you know, unless you've got a really you know, you know, a, a ten inch kill zone, which on some animals you do, yeah, right. But even then, that's not that hard to get a ten inch group, yeah, right, at five hundred yards. No, with factory ammo, that's right. not hard to do. That's under an MOA, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um. Anyhow, so. In the PRS world, sorry to cut you off there, okay. but in, in, the, in the shooting competition world, have you found any acceptable level 
uh, to be kind of a common theme for a standard deviation or for, for reloading. What do you mean for NPRS? Yeah. Um, it all depends on the shooter and the reloader. What have you seen? Um, I, so I primarily watch how to's information about powder, about, I don't watch a lot of PRS stuff yet. And I okay. will more as I get, yeah. if, if I had that direction, I will say, um, a lot of guys like to shoot for single digits. Yeah. Right. They get down to within that, That's what I've heard 10, from a lot of right? guys. Yeah. Um, and it's not that hard to do. Okay. If you find, you know, if you take the time, at, take your time reloading and make and, and control all of the variables that you can control easily. Yeah. Okay. A lot of guys, you know, there's some brands out there. There's Short Action Customs. Re, they make reloading supplies. You've got Area 419. They make reloading equipment and supplies. Well, not supplies, but equipment. Same with Short Action Customs. There's a lot of others like that. Okay. There are two of them. The first two that came to mind. Um. But they cost, their, their products cost a hefty sum, several times what, say, RCBS or Lyman or Hornady cost for okay. those same materials. Why is that? Because they're, because they're a lot tighter tolerances and their manufacturing processes. Some of the things, like some of the stuff from Short Action Customs um, offer more consistency in your ammunition with, you know, with some of their dyes and such, you know, they sell a dye that's like 500, five, 600 bucks and you can swap out some bushings and do multiple calibers or multiple cartridges with it. And which are all, you know, there's all these great options in these things, but that's not really a place somewhere to delve into if you're looking to get into reloading. You know, we, so you had this question, what equipment do I need to make quality ammunition and what is just extra equipment? All you need to make quality ammunition is, is the basics. There's a lot of, Reloading kits available, right? I would say the yeah. best. Um, I don't. I didn't buy a kit, and I, you know, I started using somebody else's equipment, yeah. and I've started buying my own, right? Which, which, if you can do that, that's a great option. Yeah. A lot of local communities actually will. There will be somebody who has their reloading room set up, mm. and they'll rent you that room twenty bucks for an hour to use their press. Oh, really? Yeah, to use their press and equipment. Okay. There's some, I know, I think there's even somebody in town that has something like that. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard of that. And so that'll give you an option just to maybe get a little idea into it. And if you can find somebody that's willing to teach you a little bit about it. Yeah. But really, you know, there's a lot, there's basics to it. I'm not going to delve into the process right now, but if, you know, if you don't have that option, you need to press. Pretty much any press will do. Um, if you are on a budget, that's been the topic for a little while. I have pulled up on Midway here, the cheapest factory press, I believe, and made by Lee. Lee makes a lot of products that are very, very budget-friendly mm. that may not be as premium as we all might like, Okay, but they can still produce quality as long as you're willing to, you know, if you don't have consistency with the most expensive equipment, it doesn't matter how expensive your equipment is. You can have the most expensive rifle, and if you don't shoot it the same way every time, you're not going to be able to. Hit right, diddly squat, right, right. right? Yeah, exactly. The same thing goes that you might have Area 419's 10-stage turret press. It's like $1,300. Okay. Okay. It's just a turret press, all right? You can get the Lyman All-American 8 for like 250 Okay. Which is an eight-stage turret press. Doesn't have as tight a tolerances, I guess. Yeah. Right? Right, right. I think the Area 419 might be made out of aluminum, you know, but okay. anyway. 
there's guys that like it. There's guys that have it. And hey, if we were if we're ever sponsored by them, I'll definitely have one. Right. <laughs> right. Just throwing that right out there. Um. Well, yeah, it's the truth of the matter. There's a reason a lot of guys use it right, on YouTube. Right, it's because right. they're sponsored or or sent one to right. test or they got a discount or whatever. But the Lee, so Lee makes some presses that are very, very like RCBS Rock Chucker, which is their basic press is like 150. Lyman's All American, you know, their their series of presses right now is the the Brass Smith. Their their cheapest Brass Smith, I think, is around 150 dollars. Okay. Lee, the Lee Breach Lock Reloader Single Stage Press, which Breach Lock is their um, they've got a similar kind of similar to a Hornady lock and load yep. system yep. with the. Yep. With the, um, the one bushings, so you can yeah. just slip in there and pop it in place. Yep. So the Lee Breach Lock Reloader Single Stage Press, it's a small little press. I think it's made out of aluminum. It's, uh, five, I mean, it's 50 bucks. Oh, really? And Lee dies are good, reliable dies. You can get a three die set, which separates your um, crimping and bullet seating, mm-hmm. which makes your, you know, if you're, when you're setting up a load, it's much, much nicer to do that. Okay. It's not going to be as nice as a, a um, you know, uh, for instance, um, Frankfurt Arsenal has a micrometer bullet seating die that can seat, you know, pretty much anything up to, I don't know if it can quite go to 50 cal, but it can go at least up to 338. Okay. And, you know, and, it, and it's like a hundred bucks. Okay. Right. But unless, you know, it would take quite a bit of a, you have to be doing a lot of different calibers to justify that. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to start with one. And if you're on a budget, the Lee, you can't beat it for the price. Okay. You know, like I said, $50 press, you can get a three-die set for like 35 bucks. Okay. That comes with your shell holder. That comes with a powder scoop. It comes with load data. Oh, really? In the, they have load data for the cartridge in the, in the die set. Interesting. It's pretty sweet setup. You can go, and you can go by RCBS, you know, FL. A uh, full length die set from RCBS that has a resizer and a yeah, and and a bullet seater which has the crimping built in for you know usually around fifty bucks yeah yeah, but you, know, you so you need a press you need dies you need a this is this is where I would major is your scale your powder scale mm. when I first started reloading I was using an old scale or it wasn't just it was an old powder measurer okay it was an old Lyman probably like 20 years old electric powder measure. Uh, and that thing was, and I didn't realize this initially, but it was feeding me out powder, give or take a grain. Okay. Which is a lot, especially yeah. if you're pushing for higher velocities and you're really getting close to your pressure limits, which most reloaders do, especially for hunting. Yeah. You're going for velocity because you have the furthest range and the most kill power. Yeah. Right. 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 So what I did is I bought a, $200 bench scale. So I can use that thing to get some powder out fast, but then I can trickle my last little bit of powder. Yeah. To make sure I know I'm getting the exact amount of powder every single time that I want. Now, tell folks down to what increment can you measure grains of powder? I mean, you can measure them down to um, two tenths of a grain, or not two tenths. You can, uh, you can measure them down with the right scale. You can get down to like, um, Two hundredths, I think. That's a thousand dollar scale, though. Wow. So for your you don't need that. So for your two hundred dollar scale that that you got. Yeah, that's down to one tenth. Down to one tenth. That was the Hornady. Now. M two bench scale. So 
you'll hear some guys talk in whole grain increments. Mm-hmm. Like I, I loaded, let's just say 70 grains of powder. And then I, I wanted to go up in velocity. So I went up to 71 and 72 and I shot those for velocity. Mm-hmm. How minute should you be with your loading? Um, should you be counting by one grain or should you be counting by half grains? Obviously, the, the closer to you get, the closer you get to your maximum pressure ratings, mm-hmm. you want to lower those increments that you're going through because no. you don't want to go from 73 to 74 grains mm-hmm. and 74 is your max. You want to go 72, 72 and a quarter, 72 and a half, 72 and three quarters, and then 73. And you might not ever even have to shoot 73 because you might hit heavy bolt lift and scarred uh, head. On, on the case, mm-hmm. you might get um, a hard extraction at 72 and a half. Whereas if you skip those quarter grains between 72 and 73, you're going to jump right into a, a stuck case into your chamber potentially, or a very heavy bolt lift, or you could blow a primer. So you shouldn't have major, major These are pressure. all extreme examples. Those are extreme right. examples. Right. One grain shouldn't yeah. ever cause that. Right. Unless right. you're already way right. too high. That's just an example. But so like you like like you say, can of worms everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um right, right. I wasn't gonna dive into all that, but you know, we do advertise hammer bullets. Yeah. Um, and we're sponsored by them. And I love hammer bullets. They are easy to load for. Yes, they, they are. They shoot amazingly well, yep. especially for hunting ammunition. I have shot six, seven shot groups at a hundred yards all different velocities and it's one MOA. On a ladder test. Just on to, a ladder Just test, to right. find velocities. So correct. So when I'm yeah. doing a test for velocity, just to see, you know, to find that max range, because there's not hammer load data, you know, there's a little yeah. bit of stuff you can find on the internet. I will say if you are loading for a 4570, a 300 short mag, six millimeter arc, or 3030, PM me on Instagram if you're interested in load data for hammers. What's know, your okay. handle on the Instagram? It is uh, Modrenaline. There you go. Modrenaline. You can find it, you, if, if you forget that, there's a link to it in the about page on the website. There you go. But if, if you're interested in load data for hammers for one of those cartridges, I have stuff I've worked up for all of those. The nice part about the hammer bullets is that you very rarely have to mess with seating depth to find your accuracy in hammer bullets. Yeah. At least I haven't had to yet. And most of what I've talked to Steve about mm-hmm. from hammer uh, Steve is one of the owners mm-hmm. of Hammer Bullets, and he said that they very rarely ever have to mess with seating depth to find accuracy in a load. It's almost always powder charge and powder um, brand, if you will. So like um, 4350 or 4198, um, mm-hmm. right? So one powder will shoot great and one powder won't. So Oftentimes, you're not going to say, well, 4350 doesn't, 4350 doesn't shoot well at this seating depth, so I'm going to put it closer to the lands. Most of the time, if that, if that um, load doesn't shoot well for accuracy, mm-hmm. you're probably going to end up switching powders. That, that's what I've gotten from him. So for a beginning reloader, um, hammer bullets, some of their bullets are very um, well marked as do not load as a beginning reloader like their absolute Mm -hmm. hammer is not a bullet that you want to start reloading as a beginner because you cannot use conventional data 
to load those bullets. The shock hammers and the and the and the regular hammer hunters tend to be closer to like what other monolithic bullets would be. They're still a touch faster on their load data. So if you start at the mid-range um, instead of being in that higher bracket for your beginning loads for a ladder test, then you're going to be okay if you're in that mid-range of load data. Right. With the absolute hammers, you might not even be able to load them at, at, in, in the mid-range of, of typical load data for those weight class of bullets in that design. So some of their bullets are experimental, um, m- more experimental by nature. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are relatively easy to load for. And if you get a powder that is recommended for that bullet and your cartridge, which if you have a question, email Hammer. They're really good about getting back with you, or you can try to call them on the website as well, as long as it's not hunting season. Um, And they'll be happy to talk with you and share some information for you. They do have private cataloged information. They do have some online forums. There's some information that have a reasonable amount of load data available out Mm -hmm. there and you can interact with other guys that have already shot perhaps what you're looking to load for. And that gives you a better place to start. But you can always just go to Hammer directly and say, look, this is what I'm shooting. I'm shooting a 30-06 and I'm buying, or or should I buy these, I don't know, 174 grain Hammer Hunters, if that's even an option or something in that range, I'm sure. Um, What powder should I look for? And then you're, they're probably going to tell you to just load it to Sammy spec length, yep. overall length. Don't even mess with your seating depth. And that makes it easier for you as a beginner. And then you can just shoot like IMR 4350 because that'll probably work just fine. And as long as you start in the middle of that range and then work up a little bit for some velocity, you're probably, chances are, I, I would be shocked if with proper shooting and a decent rifle, if you wouldn't get a one inch group or, you know, a, a hunting, adequate group you should be with that type of information right and that's like a bare bones bread and butter example 30-06 midway mid-range weight class bullet and an easy to get powder or at least it used to be imr 4350 it's not it's not the easiest to get anymore it's harder it's definitely not i don't know what stuff is a lot with that state side um you know i'm gonna say uh what was his name here um ivan or yvonne yeah um, I will email you a quick list of the all the things I would worry about. Parts and supplies. Yeah, you know, like I said, we've already opened a big can of worms <laughs> with this, and um, we could easily talk for a couple more hours. Yeah, we definitely have a lot to cover on reloading. And, 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 and this is something on. I really want to talk about a lot more specifically with hammers um, because there's not a lot of data, and I want to make it a lot easier for people to be able to, especially if you're not a reloader or if you are a reloader, but you don't like to reload something that a book doesn't give you. Yeah. I want to be able to give you what you need to be able to do that with confidence. Yeah. I started loading hammer bullets. Yeah. Which may not have been, I mean, well, let's just put it this way. I was a beginner reloader and I started with something there was not data for. Yeah. I worked up. Very, very slowly. I worked up slowly. Yeah. I started with a 4570, which is a very easy. Right. Standard deviation doesn't matter. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, in standard deviation, like I said, most guys who even big reloaders who reload for hunting, they don't care about that. Yeah. They're just looking at accuracy. And if it's accurate, then they're happy. Yeah. Um, And, and that, that's another good point to make just on this guns and optics mm-hmm. and, and reloading and factory ammo. Accuracy and, and consistency in shooting super tight groups don't be suckered in to buying a super high-end hunting rifle just because it says half MOA guaranteed. Mm-hmm. 
the majority of one MOA guarantees on the market right now uh, are all based off of three-shot groups. Right. And that's that's because it'll shoot a three-shot group with this one particular kind of ammo. If you shoot it enough, mm-hmm. you'll eventually get a three-shot one MOA group at some point. And that's all depends on your rest and your shooting form and all the all those other factors. Don't think that you have to say, well, you know, one inch isn't quite precision level. And I heard that other guys are having half MOA accuracy. Well, how many shots are they firing in a group? Because a three-shot group is kind of a low data set. From from what yeah, I have yeah. learned and, and from what I do now, uh, it, it's and this is just my opinion. Other guys are going to say, nope, three shots is plenty. Mm-hmm. And that that's fine. And there have been plenty of animals killed with three-shot groups that'll just hit a pie plate. I'm not saying that you have to do what I do, but five-shot groups give you a better understanding and, and, and a larger data set to work with. So the, the point being here is don't think that you have to shoot under an inch to have a good, effective quarter-mile mm-hmm. killing hunting rifle. You don't have to. Not every bullet hole has to be touching. Obviously, that's what we're all striving for, right. and we all love it when we shoot a nice cloverleaf round of a group and all the bullet holes are either touching in a tight clover leaf pattern or even stacked inside the same holes over and over again. That's obviously the goal in the end of it. But an inch and a half gun at a hundred yards is plenty. A two inch gun is enough for a lot of hunting purposes. For most. Yeah. For the vast majority. Yeah. You know, back to the reloading. Um there's a well you know, the, he says he's thinking about getting into reloading for fun and a cheaper way to get premium ammunition. Yeah. And reloading can be a cheaper way to get ammunition, yeah. especially if you shoot a lot. Um, however, it, if you get into it and you dive in head first and you start buying equipment and, ooh, look at this press and look at that press and oh, I want to run multiple presses, which and would be a buy, great option. And then you buy ultra high-end brass. You buy, br- well, you, brass... Is it can be expensive, but at the same time, brass will is one of the things that saves you money because you can reuse right. it. You know, get yeah. good brass, you can easily get 10, 12 cycles. Point being, the entry level cost right. is high. The entry level cost is higher. Over time, it can save you money. Yeah. If you don't go nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you find it fun, right. It's saving you money on ammunition is what you tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> But the truth of that matter may not be, well, over time, yes, it can. Yeah. And it should, you know, especially if, you know, especially if you want to buy a progressive press and if you shoot a lot of nine mil and you start reloading that, right? Right. Or two, two, three, or, or you know, I don't recommend reload, using a progressive press to reload your hunting ammunition. Uh, consistency is the most important. Regardless of what equipment you buy, um, consistency is the most important. Yeah. Um, what I, like I said, I discovered, you know, one grain of powder difference is too much. Yeah. One tenth of a grain, give or take a tenth of a grain is fine. Yeah. Give or take a couple tenths of a grain is oak is fine for almost anybody in hunting ammunition. Like you say, load it to Sammy spec. Yeah. Trying to break this down and make it easy. Load right. it to Sammy spec for, for hammers. Yeah. Okay. You're not going to find information. You're not going to open a, a reloading manual and it's going to say hammer bullets. Yeah. Right. 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 Now, what I do, I own a bunch of manuals because I reload hammer bullets. Yeah. I own like seven, I think, reloading manuals at this point. 
Okay. And that's only because I haven't found another one to add to the collection. I, I believe you. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, you've texted me like, hey, what's the data on this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and the reason I do is because, so I recommend as an easy manual to get, some guys don't like the way it's laid out, but there's a lot of good data in it. The Hornady manual. Okay. Because they have data for their, well, it was still called the GMX when they put that manual out, but they have a lot of data for the GMX. And that's their mono metal that's copper That's their mono bullet. metal copper bullet. And that bullet is going to respond the most like most of the hammer bullets. It's the hammer bolts will move a little faster, yeah. but you're not going to have to worry about pressure differences from the GMX to a very close weight hammer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the Barnes information that's available online is great. If you can get your hand on a fourth, ed- fourth edition Barnes manual, I don't want to say how much I spent on mine, <laughs> but it's probably going to run you about a hundred bucks. If you can find one, it's going to be used. Yeah. They're hard to find and they're sought after because there's not a lot because Having that book versus having having a piece of paper or being online, it's just nice. I love having my stack of manuals. When I'm thinking about a cartridge or I want to look into something, I'm thinking yeah. about a bullet, yeah. I can grab my stack of manuals and stick them by my bed and start <laughs> going through. And I've got manuals all over my lap, right? Everywhere on the bed. Um, and just like, you know, you say you're thinking about getting into it for fun. If you enjoy delving into the information about reloading. Yeah you should enjoy reloading. Right. If you enjoy ballistics, but reloading just seems like a little bit of a pain, then it's probably not for you. Right. I know somebody like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, if you can find, you know, and maybe it's just, you just need to do enough for hunting and hey, some guys don't load more than a hundred rounds a yeah. year right. because they do it for hunting and right. that's all they need. Yep. And that's fine. Yep. And in that case, it probably will save you money. It'll take over the long run. It will. Right. Especially if you shoot a Weatherby. Right. <laughs> right. A real powder gobbler. Right. Brass is expensive. Um, you know, powder. It, but, but it's still going to be a lot cheaper than 120 rounds a box. Uh, 120, 120 bucks a yeah, box. box a box. Even 4570 ammo was 60, 70, $80 a box, which right. blows my mind. I used to buy yeah. it for 30 bucks a box. Yeah. Yeah. Back and I'm in, young, right? Back, back in my day. I know. I know. I saw some on sale on the discount rack yeah. at Alaska Ammo. Yeah. 60 bucks a box yeah. on the discount. That's why you buy a 30 out 6 or a 270. Well. <laughs> I, which is why I wish I would have gotten into those cartridges a lot sooner. But anyhow, well, hammer bullets are easy enough to reload for. Just find similar weight class. Start low. Yeah. Load an increment. I, like to, I call it loading the ladder. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like you mentioned a little bit, half yep. inch. You know, you you asked about half weight, half grain or full grain increments. Yep. Um, I usually start with half grain on the low end. Yeah, everything looks okay. Yep. I'll, I'll skip even some of my loads, right? And then I'll save those, pull those bullets later, right? Because it saves me bullets and saves me primers and saves me powder, right? And exactly. it all costs money. And if you've got a cartridge, a Magnum cartridge, it's going to take around seventy grains of powder. Yeah, you're going to get a hundred rounds out of one pound of powder. Yep. On average. On average. If that pound of powder was really expensive and was $70, that's a buck per cartridge and powder. Your hammer bullets are going to usually run you about a buck per bullet, depending on the bullet. Yeah. Your primers, well, (laughs) they shouldn't cost you that much. Yeah, good luck. You know, but, so yeah, so, you know, two, three dollars a round. Right. Not bad. Right. But entry level, you're looking at what? You know, minimum of three or four hundred dollars to get into it for the equipment that you need. Yeah. Like I said, 
I'll send you some information or just, you know, a breakdown of what I think you need to get. Yep. Uh, the Hornady, the Hornady Classic Lock and Load Press kit yep. is yep. a great kit. I think it's like four or 500 bucks. Yeah. And I believe it has almost everything you need in it yeah. to get started. So on that note, if any of you guys out there are wanting to hear more about reloading in the future, we do have plans for some more uh, projects geared yeah. towards reloading coming up uh, in the near future. Email us into the show on the mm-hmm. website, on the contact button, and on the northernhunter.com, and let us know what you want to hear about. And, uh, you know, just specifically, if you just want to hear about hammer bullets, if you have specific questions for us, we'd be happy to answer that. Or if you have different questions about Mo and James's process in their reloading styles and their equipment and different things yeah, like that. Yeah, we can that. do a whole episode on it if we get the interest. Yep, exactly. So... Anyway, with that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap this show up this week. We hope you enjoyed our guns and optics and ammunition nerd out session and some interesting information at the beginning there. So without further ado, be sure to rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. And uh, if you want to support us, go shop from our partners pages and use our discount codes on the website, thenorthernhunter.com. You can find us on social media right now on Instagram and Facebook at The Northern Hunter. And if you have any questions, please let us know. And we love hearing from you guys. We always appreciate the listener feedback. We get a lot of interaction from our listeners. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of them don't make it on the show. We just try to put the ones in here that we're talking about currently or when we do a QA. and a So we hope you guys are having a great fall season. I know the low 48 season is still going strong. And you guys have a lot left to do down there. So hunt hard, be safe, good luck, and let us know how you do. And we'll see you guys next week. Until then, get out there, get after it, and good luck. We'll see you next week. Alright folks, we all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and actions securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA.